still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Who took a shoot, fought off of the scaffolding? Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through He'll answer questions from you And he won the pony too Thank you, fuck you, bye 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 Hello again, friends! And you are our friends! And welcome back to another edition of Jim Cornette's drive Through right here in October of 2022. A lot to talk about, a lot of questions. It's been a little while. A lot to cover. I don't think we have anything to review, thankfully. We're just going to have fun today, or at least pretend to. I'm your host, the great Brian Last, and here is the star of the show, Mr. Jim Cornette. Well, I got to take issue with what you just said, Brian Last, because we do have something we could review if you want to, although it's not really worthy of it, because I did have to check in on that AEW fiasco last night after hearing of the latest backstage altercation amongst I'm telling you have you seen the people on Twitter uh saying that the AEW video game should be backstage assault I think it was actually a WWE video game that they have uh mocked up to fit the AEW talent but I watched a, a a variety of that program. We can speak of it if you want to. I'd pr- prefer not to think of it anymore. But I'm, I'm chilly, Brian. It's that time of year again. I don't know whether. I guess we have listeners in all parts of the country and the world. So many of you may not be going through this. I'm sure the weather in California is just peachy delightful. But we've got the weather now down here in in Louisville, Kentucky, where it's cold at night. And it's warm in the day, and for the past several days, I've forgotten in the in the in the daytime and the sun's beating down. You got to have some air on in the house. You got to have some circulation. But then the sun goes down, and then it gets cold. And I forget which parts of the house that I've turned the air on, which parts of the house still have the heat on, and invariably I'm waking up at a block of ice. Wah. I don't like this time of year. I want my Lee. I want my springtime. I want my Lee. I love to sing uh, about the moon and the June and the spring. Uh, I love to sing. Uh. All right. All right. Come on. Enough. This is your program. Yeah. And, you know, we're Enough delayed singer. here this week. I've got to say something. Okay. Like I haven't been already. I demanded that we record about. Well, about 36 hours later this week than normal, because you have a holiday, or you had a holiday, and you have out-of-town family that 
you never get together with on that particular holiday, and I insisted you do that. I refused to do a program with you neglecting your family members. <laughs> That's right. You absolutely insisted on it after I told you that there was no way I would ever work on Yom Kippur ever. Ever. And that's why I insisted, well, we ain't going to have no, but we could have <laughs> worked on Yom Kippur afternoon no. before it was technically Yom Kippur, oh. but, well, yeah. but your family was there. That's right. So anyway, so now, but it, it, it serendipitously, we, we waited and, and now there's, there's news to talk about that people are interested in, but let me, how do you celebrate? Is there a big is there a big, like, is there a tree for Yom Kippur? Is there a big feast? Is there, uh, you know, lights? Do you carve anything? No, not what's really. The, what's the celebration like? Do the kids dress up in native outfits and dance frolically around the, the dining room table? Or what, what goes on? I don't know what Mel Brooks movie you're thinking of, but no, none of that uh, actually happens up here. Uh, unlike... Other people, we don't cut down trees. We usually plant them. No, usually, well, not usually. The tradition is what Yom Kippur usually, is. Usually, but it's not limited to this. <laughs> usually. At sundown, you have a feast with your family, and then you fast for 24 hours, and then you have the second meal with the family. Sundown to sundown. And you're off the grid. You don't work, and you're not supposed to leave Wait a minute, that, that, Technically, that's you're not supposed You just... You eat once, and then 24 hours later, you eat again? Okay. Well, it's a, day, it's a day what? of thought. It's a day of meditation. And minute, what day don't you usually think? What day do you go through your life where a, not a thought pops in your head? You're not, not getting oh, it. You're shit, not getting it. You're not getting it. No, you're not getting it. It's a day where you cut off the world. You're not supposed to interact with people. Wait you're a minute. What's, what? Will you let me talk? What it's is day, different about that than every other day that we, you and I have where we cut off the outside world? Because I, re I don't work. You're not supposed to work. You're not supposed to do anything like that for the entire day other than temple. You're not supposed to go out or be seen in public. And I adhere to those rules, and I love those rules. I may adhere to those rules on other days, right, as you may have so, pointed so out. Basically, so what you're telling me is all these years, I'm 61 years old, I never realized I was Jewish. Because you've just described my life. Eat a giant meal about six o'clock in the evening. Don't eat again for 24 hours. Uh, cut yourself off from the outside world. Ignore everybody. The only thing that you mentioned that is not my habit nor yours is don't work for a day. Otherwise than that, you have just described my life. I'm Jewish and I never knew it. You know what? Shalom. Shalom. Now. Judaism really is the best. You should consider it. Well, what we're the, we're the funniest. We got wait good a minute food. now. Does that mean that I need to? What is the deal with that? Where you oh. get clipped? You know, I well, don't I, know. I don't know if there's some. Would kind I have of to a, do that all over again? All over again? No. If you've had it done, you're good. If you haven't okay. had it done, that you have to get clearance from a rabbi. I would believe. Well, maybe at your bar mitzvah, you're 63, <laughs> you get bar mitzvah or something. <laughs> nobody's monkeying with it at this point in my life. It is what it is now. Any alterations were made before I knew what the full function and purpose of it was. And for. think about this you could hide the dome with a yarmulke. Hey, are you insinuating that I'm going thin up there? That's my Took plan. Took me a second to realize that's the little thing that goes right there that's my plan as soon as i start going bald i'm gonna be wearing that yarmulke every how does that day. stay on <laughs> um well actually the shape of it i don't know how to describe it but it naturally would 
almost stay on. If you have a lot of hair, there's a little pin that they let you use to pin it to your hair. But otherwise, you know, if you have very thin hair, a crew cut, or perhaps you're bald. Well, but it don't it reach all easily. the way around like, you know, like a... No, you don't need a strap. All the way down to your ears and shit. <laughs> no, it does not. And it doesn't, it doesn't come up over... So I, I can't imagine that would stay... I have enough trouble just, you know, keeping my hair combed when, when the uh, wind is blowing I'm outside. I can't imagine how that thing wouldn't take off. And let, is there Velcro? It's not Velcro. It's just... tape? You know... Whenever God gave the recipe for yarmulkes to whoever he gave it to, it was brilliantly crafted so it could just sit there and it does not fall off. Huh. I, mean, I mean, if you... That's amazing. If you do a tumble salt, you're fucked. You could, you could make it come off if you tried hard enough, is oh, yeah. what you're saying, but it's not going to just... If you slap someone at Temple and they have that yarmulke on, the yarmulke's coming off. Well, that's good to know. That's good to know. It happens. But look, but, well... <laughs> Well, I guess I would say I'll try it, but I guess in, unless I go through all the paperwork and everything and and salabim everybody, if I put one on, would it would it start burning me? Would I would it burn me because the 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 Jewish gods were upset that I was defiling it as an outsider? Nah, I mean if you accept Judaism, like, hey, it's great to have you on the team. Well, what if I just want to try the fucking hat on before I make any commitments? Look, there's some... I don't want to fucking melt my head if there's some <laughs> curse to it. Of all the things... No outsiders are allowed to... Of all the things you're going to burn in hell for, this is the least <laughs> of your problems. This is the one I wouldn't worry about. <laughs> you think I got other issues I should be more worried about? If you're worried about upsetting the gods, the Jewish gods are the ones you have to worry about the least. There's various other gods that have their eyes looking right at you. Huh. What about the gods of wrestling? Well, well, no, I think they're all good with me. I've tried to hold up for them. I think they'd probably be good with me because I've been on their side in this whole thing. If there was a heavenly, divine wrestling council, <laughs> who do you think would be on it? <laughs> well, now, see, here's the thing. I'm, I'm going back to what you said a minute ago. I think most of the greatest talents and heroes and movers and shakers and promoters and et cetera of wrestling would probably be, they would have probably retired down South. So I don't, you might be left with fucking, you know, with the Hardly boys on the fucking wrestling council up in heaven for heaven's sake. Uh, see, I have no, no pun intended. That is one of the problems today in wrestling. There are no good, strong Jewish promoters. I know it sounds funny me saying that, but if you look at the history of wrestling, the most successful, the most creative, I mean, Jack Pfeffer, Sam Mushnick, you know, Heyman, you're talking about creativity. And right now, happy Heyman, the jovial Jew right now, there's no, I mean, MJF because he's the biggest star on AEW TV and Heyman because of his placement in WWE TV and what he does behind the scenes. But there's no powerful Jewish person in professional wrestling right now. Well, except for you and me, the most powerful person in podcasting. Yeah. Well, it's your show. It is. And uh, was that the happy talk? No more. You were on the field and plowing and happy? farming. We're, we're in the fields and farming. Oh, the Andy of uh, the Andy Kaufman and Jerry Lawler Tales from the Territory will be this coming Tuesday. Uh on on the heels of the debut from this past Tuesday night, which was just Tales from the Memphis Territory. They're gonna do a special program on Andy not only the, the match, but Andy's sojourn and foray into the world of Memphis wrestling in 82 and 83. That's going to be this coming Tuesday on Vice TV at 10 o'clock Eastern time. 
on Tales from the Territories. And then after that, I'm not sure what the order is, but you're going to, you might see me popping up in the next week or two. And as always, with a lot of these programs, you're going to see either video footage or some of my photography from the point in time that will be illustrating some of these fine programs. So we got to mention that and uh, make sure (laughs) Mario Galento hadn't had this much television time in 50 years, by the way. If he could only see now his reputation, if see the, the, the pun I just made, if he could only see his reputation. And you know, the funny thing is about that program I've heard from Mark James and uh, Memphis historian Mark James, and, and also I think Randy Hales mentioned on Twitter, and nobody that's heard the Galento story before ever heard that Jerry Jarrett actually got Galento's eyeball out. Now, the way we always heard it was because Jerry Jarrett only has one good eye, and Galento was going for that. And uh, as a matter of fact, they did that in the angle too with uh, Bill Dundee and Buddy Landell in 86 when they got Jeff in the business. They tried to go for Jerry's good eye because everybody knew he only had one. But but the uh, the other Malent, 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 Malento, the other Galento <laughs> stories, good Lord, the other Galento stories were, uh, and the other parts of that story were pretty consistent with what we've heard all these years and what happened. But uh, the eyeball on the mat was a a very... Uh, was a made-up thing that was never, ever said by Jerry <laughs> Jarrett before the day he sat there and recorded that show. Well, he had, it's been 50 years, actually, 49 years, and he he's never got to talk about it on national television before. Hey, uh, you brought oh, up Andy God. Kaufman before. Did you ever see the... I want to say it must have been 82, the TV special he did, Soundstage, where he had the Tony Clifton puppet, but he did a skit with Stan Frazier, where... No! It was so... It was such a brilliant special. They did a short skit with Stan Frazier, where Frazier stood there, I think in his overalls, and had a cup with three eggs in it, and he would drink it, and then spit (laughs) it back into the cup, and then drink it again. And they did a thing where it was so disgusting, Andy got kicked off TV and he had to go to court to try to get himself back on TV. <laughs> but it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant special. Well, I have I thought I'd seen everything that Andy did related to wrestling or with wrestling guests or whatever, but especially with Plowboy Frazier. I mean, Frazier eating an ice cream sundae could get you kicked off TV for being disgusting because he just, you know, it was Plowboy. So I can only imagine what that looked like. And he, uh, that's the thing. Andy had to meet Frazier in Memphis. That's where he would have seen him. So he said, (laughs) nobody else on network television looks like this fucking guy. Holy mackerel. There were two guests on the show. I remember one was Elaine Boozler and the other (laughs) one was photo duty, not howdy duty, but photo duty, the howdy duty (laughs) they would take to different things. (laughs) Like I said, you got to see it. If you've never seen it, I'm sure someone will have a link and send it to you. It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I saw it when I was a teenager and I fell in love with it. It was brilliant. All right, Colt, send me the link to what Andy Kaufman's soundstage? Soundstage. That's right. I remember that series. They did, they would spotlight different performers, right? On PBS. Yeah. Yes. On (laughs) Plowboy Frazier on PBS. Well, that's about as good as Dutch Mantel and Jeff Jarrett in the Smithsonian Institution. Hey, who was the drummer? The drummer at the uh, uh, concert? Yeah. The drummer I at the concert know. who ended up getting involved in the post-match. 
I don't know. Mark Gulen. No. From the House of Gulen. That's right. What what did they plant? He, obviously, he was not a member of the well, symphony orchestra. Actually, he may have or been. Or was he? He was a professional drummer. Remember, he God. became a professional wrestler late in life. He went to Bill Dundee School with Terry Garvin Sims and Todd Morton and a few people. And he broke in. He was older. He was a manager. He was really good. And then, you know, that was the way Memphis worked. He was gone. But then yeah. he came back briefly as a wrestler, the Beast. And then he stopped wrestling and he just went back to music. And I think he was in a touring band. I forget who had a legendary country musician. But he was in like the touring band for like 20 years or something. Good Lord. So Gulen handed Dutch the drum. Of the house I of bet Gulen. you've never heard those words put together in that order. <laughs> I certainly haven't. Well, speaking of things happening in wrestling and speaking of <laughs> brawls in wrestling, we were going to record the other day and we had different things happening on Twitter between AEW talent that we were going to talk about. We recorded today. We are recording right now, I should say. And... <laughs> A lot more has happened. It's only gotten better. Sammy Guevara and Andrade. I don't know how we even begin talking about this. What have, when did you first get wind of everything going on here? Well, I'll tell you, uh, as best I can recollect, counselor, I sound like I'm testifying now. It was, it was uh, on Twitter. The, the people were a Twitter, all a Twitter over the Twitter controversy where Apparently, Olandre did a podcast or an interview somewhere, and it didn't sound like he was, you know, like, fuck this fucking Guevara. It was like, ah, this Sammy Guevara. You know, he said uh, he went and complained to the locker room like a little girl that I was too stiff with him. Hey, John Cena didn't complain, and this guy didn't complain, but Sammy Guevara complains about me being too stiff with him like a little girl. That was about the most inflammatory comment that, at least from the transcription that I read, that old Andre said about Sammy. Well, he did indicate that Sammy was the one guy he had any issue with. He pointed out that I have not had an issue with Omega. I've not had an issue with CM Punk. Only yeah. really one person, Sammy Guevara. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's not like, if fuck this fucking guy. If, I, if he was standing here right in front of me, I would, why I ought to, you know, it was like, hey, I've had a problem with one guy, this fucking guy. He complained about me. All right. Well, Sammy decided to kick it up a notch on Twitter, and I don't, I can't quote it chapter and verse. I think you have it in front of you, but he <laughs> basically significantly said, hey, motherfucker, fuck you. Do you have that response uh, there from Sammy on Twitter? I have a series of responses that we could talk about one at a time. Apparently on October 3rd at 10.07 p.m., so that was Monday, Sammy tweeted out out of nowhere to the general public at this time. Cinderella story, out of nowhere. You are a jobber, a favor <laughs> hire. Be grateful, bitch. <laughs> so the next day, the next morning... Andrade, ole, ole, I See, now I feel like I have to do yes. it after you did it for so long. Ole, ole, 9.46 a.m., October 4th. I said it to your face, face being in caps. If you had a problem with me and you said nothing, again in caps, I won't beat your ass because I'm a professional. Don't be scared. When I say something, I name names. And I'm not scared to get fired. Hashtag Sammy. 
Oh, and, and by the way, I believe part of the story was that Andre had actually gone up to him at some point and said, hey, do we, oh, no, he didn't say anything to his face. Go ahead. Let's also talk about another angle of this before we go forward with the tweets, because this is a big part of it. The idea that it's now out there, people know, but I mean, people have known for a while, it's just now out there. There are a lot of guys who want to go back to WWE that don't want to be there. They see what's going on in that locker room. And whether they deserve the push they have or not, they certainly want to go back to the WWE system as opposed to everything that's happening in AEW. Again, Andrade may not be someone that you go, oh, what an amazing talent to steal back. But in his head, he doesn't want to be there, allegedly. And that's why, allegedly, people have been saying, including Sammy, I'll keep trying to get fired so you can go back to the WWE. Well, Sammy responded to the previous tweet from Andrade. 10.57 a.m. on October 4th, so about an hour and 10 minutes after the previous tweet. Sammy gets up a little later. You didn't say shit to me, you liar, but here's some <laughs> truth, you ungrateful prick. <laughs> you would be jobless if it wasn't for your dad-in-law. Are you really mad at me or mad at yourself for failing to get over for a second time? Second in caps. Ooh. Just go back to WWE like we all know you want to do and fuck off. <laughs> Wait a minute, hold on. A large order of fish heads, please, for <laughs> Mr. Andre Ole Oleo. So that was Sammy's response to Andre saying, I'm not scared to get fired. Well, that did not make Andrade Ole Oleo. Now I'm doing Andrade El Idolo happy. <laughs> and here's his response Okay, I'm a liar with an emoji of someone laughing so much they're crying. See you on Wednesday! Two exclamation points. I'll tell you to your face again! Three exclamation points! And nothing you say that you do not have any pro- See, this is where there's sometimes a translation issue. And nothing you say that you do not have any problem. At this point- Well, he told him. A third party jumped in. Jose, the assistant- at 10.51 a.m., I was there and can confirm this incident happened. Andrade gave an honest interview about his thoughts on AEW, his upcoming Rampage match with his AEW career on the line, and more. Good thing no one in AEW can translate Spanish to English. Uncensored, all in caps, with a emoji of someone covering their mouth. And that's another thing. Did you realize he had a match coming up with his career on the line? <laughs> Against well, number 10 of the Dark Order, whose mask was on the line? Yeah, apparently now they're going to try to rehabilitate number 10 into some type of legitimate, well-thought-of talent by popping his mask off because he looks so stupid and he's number 10. But uh, they put him to just, instead of just, Having him go away for two weeks, come back and take the fucking mask off and start fresh. They I th they booked him in a mask versus career match with Andre Ole Oleo. And if anybody thinks that Andre was going to lose that and retire, well, but yeah, but just <laughs> that was supposed to be on Friday and more on that later. Well, one final tweet here. Ricky Starks <laughs> chimed in and I think he spoke for a lot of people. Man. Can my coworkers just shut the fuck up for a minute? <laughs> and Jim, let's talk about this. The Twitter exchange over a couple of days. Andrade and Sammy Guevara. Well, again, why? 
I guess it's the generation that Sammy's in that he thinks that that's an appropriate thing to do is to, and I mean, I've jousted with many people on Twitter and everybody fucking jousts with people on Twitter. When somebody's in goddamn Auckland, New Zealand or Swaziland, or you don't know where the fuck they're at. And you see, they said, so well here, fuck you motherfucker. But you work with this guy. You're going to see him every week at TV. It's one of the boys that's in the locker room and you choose instead of calling the guy up on the phone, if you're that incensed about what he said on an interview, which basically was that Sammy's the only guy that ever said that or ever complained about him being too stiff or whatever. It's it, that's not the most inflammatory verbiage I've ever heard, you know, uttered towards somebody else. So Sammy, instead of calling a guy on the phone or instead of, Going up to him on Wednesday night, he wants to make a production out of it. He wants to tell the whole world. And in the process, he wants to call more attention to the fact that everybody in that locker room hates each other and they all act like they're fucking 12. Except this time, Sammy's not engaging in you know, distasteful public displays of affection with Ty Melo Conti. He's fucking talking about a guy that probably, I mean, let's face it, you know, we haven't had much good to say about old Andre's matches, but he can probably kick the shit out of Sammy Guevara. So I don't know why he chose that route to, you know, but again, then, What's the other guy going to say when this fucking little guy with a slappable face, which is why he was such a good heel until we found out he's a mental incompetent and can't figure out how to, he accidentally got over and can't figure out how to stay over. Now the people really do hate him, not just because he's a heel. What's Andre supposed to do? Just sit there and take that Twitter lashing. He was bound to say something back. Now you don't have a private issue amongst the boys in the locker room that if, well, if they had somebody in charge of talent relations that anybody actually listened to or respected, uh, that could solve that. But of course that's obviously not the case because they certainly haven't been able to solve any of the other ones, but they could have kept it amongst themselves and come to TV and and either bitched at Tony or bitched at each other or whatever in some type of face to face before it got that to that point because now they're well I'll see you Wednesday well I'll see you Wednesday motherfucker so then let's get into part two of this fiasco well let me ask you well, a go question ahead. just in general because this is something we really have never had to experience before if you were on the WWE main roster or in the days of WCW. Or even really, well, I shouldn't say impact, but if you were on a main event, if you were on a main company's roster, you weren't doing shoot interviews. Right. And nowadays we're at a point where everyone talks to everyone about everything. Right. Is this unfortunately a natural byproduct of that? The fact that Andrade is doing what everyone else does. He's doing an interview where he's giving his honest and open thoughts, we believe. I mean, you know, there still is not wood, there's still a chance it could be a work. He's doing it. <laughs> interview where he's giving his thoughts because he's being asked an honest question and he has two options i can now lie to this guy who's going to treat me like i'm a liar because everyone else isn't lying to him is this kind of a part of the problem of letting guys go out there and do all these interviews 
Well, it causes because if he's going to be on, everyone doesn't like somebody. It's going to keep coming up if people keep talking to people. Amazingly enough, there's the concept of doing a reasonably shoot interview and still keep MJF does it all the time. Punk weaved seamlessly into it back and forth with knocking people that he wasn't really mad at at the same time as he got to point across about the people he was mad at. You can do a shoot kind of interview where nobody's going to say you're lying, and at the same time, you don't have to goddamn spill your guts about everything you think and everything that's going on like you're being interrogated by the enemy as a prisoner of war. So there's that. And even then, back in the, the, you said that guys that were working for the WWE or main roster big company back in the day would not have been doing shoot interviews. But that's what Sean kept making little comments about Brett that could be taken by the people who knew as one way and the people who didn't as another, whatever. It's still going to come out. But the question is, do you just immediately start like fucking children in front of the general population bitching at each other on Twitter if you're two grown men that are going to see each other, that have to work together, that can't just dismiss each other? If I don't like something somebody says, I can block them on Twitter, or they can block me, or we can cuss each other out and I can win, which is what always happens. But this is a case, they're going to have to physically, or at one point, <clears throat> since they were on the same roster, they were going to have to physically wrestle each other. They're going to have to occupy the same locker room. They're going to have to, for the foreseeable future, or at least they were before all this went down, who knows now. So that's the time. If you're genuinely pissed off about what the guy said, as our friend Stephen P. New says, his motto is, I will give any man one chance to do the right thing. If Sammy He's was... Nice. He's too nice. Well, though. but no one chance. If Sammy was so incensed that old Andre had said that he complained like a little girl, then he should have called him up on the phone and said, hey, let's sit down and talk on Wednesday and air this out one way or the other. Or however they wanted to present that instead of on Twitter in front of the world. Oh, because it makes the company look like shit. And Tony's not in charge enough to do anything about it. It might not have made the company look like shit if three of their executive vice presidents and their biggest star were still not suspended for having a goddamn hey rube in the locker room. It wouldn't maybe look so bad if. Kingston had not been suspended for two weeks just recently for trying to pie-face Sammy back in the back. There was the story that old Thunder Rosa was hiding in the bathroom after she broke one of the other girls' noses. She was afraid that they were all going to beat her up. What the fuck is going on here? And it's not even... <laughs> Here's the thing. It's not even like... In the old days when Sean and Brett might get in a scuffle or Nord and Butch Reed in Oklahoma City or guys that were well-matched and give you a good fight. It's goddamn ridiculous. Half these guys can't fight to begin with. And the matches, 
the matches ought to go on as practice in the fucking locker room and put the shoot fights in the ring and the TV ratings would go up. But that's, that's the thing is no. And Tony again, sitting back watching his wrestlers talk this way on Twitter. And uh, tell me the story is now that he spoke to them beforehand. Again, we don't know how he spoke to them, or if he spoke to them together or separately. But the story well, that goes... was see, well, yeah. The quote was that well, he talked to both of them. Well, does that mean by text? Were they even in town on Tuesday, wherever they, wherever they were supposed to be by that point? Did he gather them together? Obviously, he didn't, because apparently it sounds like the first time that they saw each other face to face was back in the back at the Wednesday TV. So go ahead, read the uh, Zabada. Well, here's what uh, was reported on the Wrestling Observer Newsletter website. Following their back and forth on Twitter this week after an Andrade interview where he said it had an issue with Guevara, Meltzer said both men were talked to Tuesday and were told no fighting or else both no. would be sent home. <laughs> now, wait, hold on. Okay, Sammy Guevara, Andre Oli, Oli, please go to the principal's office. Now, boys, don't want y'all fighting now. We're going to have to send you home. Call your parents. Seriously. Well, listen to this part. This is the part that got me. In Andrade's case, he was told he would not be fired if he got into a fight. (laughs) Both agreed and said there would be no issues. (laughs) So Andrade was given a get out of jail free, take a shot card. We're not going (laughs) to fire you. We'll just send you home. What is that? Well, and again, for all the people that are trying to say, oh, no, it's all a bunch of bullshit that guys are trying to get fired or guys want to leave, Tony Khan recognizes that it is enough of a possibility or even a probability that Andre is indeed trying to get fired so that he can go back to the WWE, that the president, or the owner, the manipulator, operator, major domo of the entire company tells the guy, If you beat the shit out of Sammy, we're going to send you home, but we won't fire you because we know that's what you want. Why else would you say that? Hey, we'll go back to this in a second, but what you just said triggered a thought. (laughs) If that's how they reacted to him here, how does that affect any potential legal action with the CM Punk case if anyone's fired or suspended? Well, we know they're suspended, but if anyone's fired, look at how AEW is dealing with this situation. Yes, they have just told the rest of the guys. Now, listen, we're only going to fire the people that want to be here. If you're trying to fuck up and get fired because you want to leave, whatever you do, we're not going to fire you. We're just going to send you home. But then if they send them home (laughs) without pay, at some point, they have to fire them or pay them. So are they sending them home with pay? Well, so wait a minute. Does this mean that... (laughs) If I take a fucking swing at pockets, then I can get sent home and don't have to get dropped on my head every week on this bogus wrestling program, but I'll still get paid. If Andrade comes back into the locker room next week, apologize to everyone, and just walks right up to Sammy and punches him in the face again, does he get sent home again? <laughs> what happens for the second offense? And say, here's that you cannot... I mean, obviously, everybody knows that 
if if a contract has two or three or four years, if a guy's injured, they can freeze a contract. At least they can in the WWE. Right. But if you suspend a guy, then if, if especially if you suspend him without pay, at some point you either have to bring him back and start paying him again, or you got to fire him. You can't just say, okay, you're under contract to me, but I'm sending you home. I'm not using you. I'm never paying you again, but you can't do anything else. That ain't going to stand up in court. So, apparently, now, if if you don't want to be an AEW, if you beat the shit out of your co-workers, you will not get fired. But that might make being an AEW more pleasant if you get to beat the shit out of the people that you don't like. So that may solve one of those issues. What incentive is there for an AEW wrestler now to not do an interview and immediately talk about WWE in a glowing fashion if you know it'll get you out of trouble? If you know just hinting at the idea you want to go there. And by the way, I don't care what anyone says. They're actively trying to get guys to come back. They're trying to get guys to be interested in coming back. They're reaching out to people. And Tony knows it. And the problem is people want to do it because they're not happy there. Well, let's get back for a second. So they were talked to on Tuesday. And apparently Andre said, oh, no, I'll be totally professional. There will be no fight whatsoever, right? And I guess Sammy said the same thing or elsewise, you know, that would have kind of defeated the purpose of saying, but we talked to him on Tuesday and everything was fine. But what they did was they just said, oh, absolutely. We're not going to fucking sure, Tony, we won't fight until they got in front of each other. But then from what I've heard, Sammy was not actually uh motivated to follow through with all of the fuck you and drop dead and eat shit and all that stuff he said on twitter he was like ah and old andre just said well fuck you pam but again you know and i'm not i don't know in real life in a bar or anything if sammy would go for it or not but he is being a good employee there if he's not doing anything because Tony just told him don't do he's anything. Being a, he said, but yes. he's being a good employee. He runs his fucking dick liquor Tuesday to a guy that can kick the shit out of him in his sleep. And then when he sees him on fucking Wednesday, he's like, oh, I don't want to fight because the boss told us not to. Well, it's good because if the boss hadn't told us not to fight, Sammy was still going to get his ass kicked. He put himself in that situation, but it wasn't a situation he could win in because Andrade could do whatever he wants he can come up to him and blow him off or he can come up to him punch him in the face he's not going to be penalized he doesn't want to be there (laughs) Sammy was in a bad again he put himself in that position but he was he couldn't have won in that position as soon as Andrade came up to him he was screwed so here's what happened the booker of the year and the experienced promoter that Tony Khan is, he believed both wrestlers who were actively saying fuck you to each other when they said, oh, we won't have a fight in your locker room, we promise. And four, and 24 hours later, they had a fight in his fucking locker room. And he only sent the one home because he couldn't, he already told Andre he wasn't going to fire him, so he sent him home. And a lot of people were upset that Sammy, and I'm talking about fans were upset, and apparently some of the talent in the locker room were upset that Sammy wasn't sent home also, because even if he's not the one who swung first, he is the one who directly engaged in the trash talking on Twitter first. 
And they just suspended everyone that was in the room for the punk Young Bucks incident. They suspended the people that were trying to pull that one apart. But conveniently, Sammy was teaming up in the main event on the television show with our friend Y2J. And obviously, Jericho said, oh, Tony, you can't send Sammy home. It'll fuck up our tag team match. And I'm the most important thing in the world. And I'm your big star now. And the whole company's going to collapse if it's not for me and my sports entertainment. And so Sammy ended up not only wrestling in the main event on national television, but he's the one that gets the pinfall. When when Jericho knocks the other guy out, Sammy covers him. One, two, three. So Sammy gets his hand up, and Andre gets sent home. For Sammy being the one to run his dick liquor, because, again, Andre was not on that podcast going, I'm going to slap the shit out of this guy. Fuck him. Hey, Sammy, you listen to me. He was like, hey, one guy said I was stiff, complained about me, whined like a girl. Remind me, the Eddie Kingston incident, was it that Eddie tried to pie-face him and Sammy didn't do anything physically there either? Yes, basically when Sammy came back, apparently Kingston rushed up to him and said, who the fuck are you calling a fat piece of shit? And tempted that and Sammy was, oh my gosh, oh golly. I think he needs to... Make sure he doesn't go anywhere without Ty from now on. Ty might need to take care of him. Hey, she's a badass. Be his bodyguard. Yeah, she's a black belt, I believe. <laughs> she well, exactly. Could. Yeah. And that's why, you know, it may, may have been better for Sammy if she's the one that fights Andre. So let me talk to you about Andrade a little bit. Because beyond this incident, since the moment he got there, you and I have pointed out, he's not really made for this. No. He was pretty good in Mexico as La Sombra. I was watching a lot of that stuff back then. Other than the time when he had Zelina Vega on the main roster and she was kind of the star, I don't think his run in America has worked well. He can wrestle good and he's in great shape, but his promos are unintelligible. Unintelligible. And he hasn't really shown, Sammy was right in one aspect, he hasn't really shown that he can get over. They gave him Chavo, they gave him an assistant, they've constantly had him in the mix with various things and no one cares. So with all that said, and knowing that this guy wants to be fired, and knowing that he probably has a really nice contract for a long time coming, and it may or may not be a loss to AEW if he wasn't there, how do you handle this now if you're Tony Khan? How do you handle Andrade? Well, that's the thing is, I'd just leave him home, but I'd pay him. Because... (laughs) It's not imp- whether he shows up or doesn't, whether he's on television or not on television, whether he's on their events or not on their events, it's not going to impact their business from a financial standpoint one iota. Nobody's buying a ticket to see him. Nobody's turning tickets back in because he's not there. He's on the card. If you fire him, then you've set a precedent where... You know, anybody that wants to get out of there can do something to fucking get fired. And at this point, Tony's going to have to realize he's been taken on a lot of these guys. He's signed long-term pack. He's got pack for fucking five years, right? Jesus Christ, we, we've seen everything he can do, and, and uh, you can see that in three weeks. 
It's the same thing every time. And this is on the heels of everything that is or isn't going on with Malachi Black and Buddy Murphy. Yes, with the House of the the Black folks over there, Malachi Black and Buddy Black and their little friends. They, They want to leave. But the problem is, if he lets them, then anybody now from now on that Tony signs is going to know that they can fuck up and get out of there. So, unfortunately for Tony, the thing to do is, is you know, suspend them if they do something, and then, but at some point, you're going to have to start paying them again, but still don't bring them back. Put them in the deep freeze. And for a lot of guys, they won't care. What is that, Ring of Honor? The deep freeze? No. I mean, they aren't seen in public. A lot of guys won't care going to the mailbox every week, getting a fucking check and never be seen in public. That would be a dream job for some people. But most of these guys these days are Samarkish. They would <laughs> they would definitely rather take a large cut in pay and, you know, or uh, no money and work and just ruin their career. Because if you've got them for two, two and a half years, if they have to sit home and they can't do anything else, everybody's going to forget about them. Except if you're not going to do that to a punk level person. He sat at home for seven years. People didn't forget. But Andre? And I would assume he couldn't work in Mexico either if he's under contract to AEW. So if guys are specifically trying to get fired to go back to the other company, if Tony, you know, wants to stop that, he's going to have to set the precedent that you might get sent home and you might get paid, but they will, you will be in the federal witness protection program. If I've got you for long enough, people will forget you ever existed before you can ever get in a wrestling ring again. And then Tony, meanwhile, takes his lumps and pays that money out for being stupid enough to sign a lot of these people to begin with on the say-so of a bunch of his Currently suspended EVPs. What's to stop Tony, and he wouldn't do this, but doing what Vince did, maybe not as cruelly, but just a mass release of some of the people that either don't want to be there or don't want to be there and aren't really helping anything anyway. I mean, if Andrade goes back to the WWE, it means nothing to WWE, it means nothing to AEW. He's just one of these wrestlers that exists. He'll go back and forth, but but it won't cause anyone else to go back and forth in terms of a viewer or someone buying a ticket. You've set the precedent, though. Our contracts don't mean anything. We will fire you if you fuck up bad enough on purpose, and we know you're doing it on purpose, or we'll let you out of it if you're just so unhappy. Well, then that just means that you're a goddamn audition. <laughs> you're, you're bringing somebody in for a while. If, if, they can, if the contract means nothing, and it's a three-year contract, but uh, they decide in three months, Tony's an idiot, can't book, hate the locker room, everybody's mad at each other, want to get the fuck out of here, I'll just punch somebody. Well, you can either get fired and be rewarded with what you want, or you can sit at home for the next two years and nine months until everybody, you know, thinks you're fucking dead. But to look at it, maybe, from a Tony Khan perspective, not to say this is the right thing or not, But here you have a guy making a good amount of money who hasn't really meant much to the business of AEW. No one has bought a pay-per-view because of Andrade. His merch sales aren't, you know, anything to talk about. There's nothing that really is tangible with Andrade 
There's nothing that lends itself to growing your business. So you have a guy that's making a lot of money, not really what you want. You know, WWE used to have the ability to cut guys after whatever, 90 days, you're gone. Or actually, they can cut guys at any time now that I think about yeah. it. Yeah. That's the other thing. Beyond this whole issue with WWE, and if Tony finally, and Tony's not the guy to do it, but if they had an executive there or someone who could put their foot down and say, look, this guy did want to go back, and we don't want him, we're letting him go, no one else is going to get this kind of fucking treatment. Cut this shit out. I don't know. I mean, is it really worth it to well, hold on to this guy just, for another three years? Andrade? Does he mean anything said, to either company? First thing, they just said to the other, to the two guys, well, don't fight on Tuesday. Okay, we won't. And on Wednesday, they fought. Well, that's why I'm saying it can't be Tony my, and it can't be Mega because people there don't see them as people that need to be respected as bosses. My response to that is that it was the time for Tony to do that before the guy, before it became public that the guy wants to get fired. He should have fired him before it. He should have. I can't believe that once a year, at least, Tony has not sat down and looked at his talent roster and looked at the contributions or lack thereof that some were making and look at the bloated nature of the nobodies that he just has everywhere and look at the people that haven't if I couldn't sell pussy on a troop train, much less goddamn have a great wrestling match and it's just an indie darling that was of the moment and somebody got, you know, fucking hysterical and signed him up and clear everybody out once a year. Go up and down your entire roster. Contracts coming up, people on per nights. Who do we fucking need? Who do we not need? Who's worked out? Who's just fucking hanging around who's not worth a shit okay these contracts they're going to be due in six months but i shouldn't have signed them to begin with so these guys are the ones that are going to be putting everybody over trying to get some other people fucking over whatever but he hasn't done a house cleaning in three years a couple of the people that really fucked up bad like that fucking jimmy havoc and jelly and whatever they were allowed to matriculate out well, no, Jimmy but Havoc was cut. Jimmy Havoc was the one guy cut early on, if you remember. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I'm saying. Well, and then he didn't. He didn't even cut jelly. He couldn't even spread jelly. Uh, but he <laughs> he quietly let um let him you know wander off back into the fields where they came from. But a company, especially of that size with that payroll, that once a year, he has not gone through and said, okay. What was I fucking thinking? Who talked me into this one? I got to get rid of them too, whatever, and cut off some fucking Deadwood. But he won't, and he hasn't. So now, but that was the time before people figured out publicly which ones and who want to get fired on purpose to get the flock out of Dodge, he should have been firing them. It's all going to be very interesting. I mean, AEW has a lot of problems right now, and what do you think about the idea that now all of a sudden people are paying attention to these problems? Now because it's overt, because there are incidents that can't be ignored, people are talking about this. But for a long time, you know, we weren't the only ones. We were certainly the most prominent ones. But for sometimes we were the only ones talking about the problems backstage in AEW, the problems with the management structure, the problem with the lack of management, all of these issues beyond the bad booking, which now people are paying attention to because they can't ignore it.
beyond people not buying tickets like they used to, which people are now paying attention to because they can't ignore it. All of the management issues that we've talked about, what are your thoughts on the fact that people are now kind of paying attention to it? Well, and it's not, here we're not trying to say, I told you so, I told you so. Here's the deal. Other people were talking about it since the start. They just didn't happen to have a podcast that reaches as many people as we do. And when I would talk to either people who had been in the wrestling business for 30 years who were looking at what was going on, they saw the same thing I did. Or except for the ones that wanted a job at a high fucking financial rate, they they wouldn't admit that, but I'm sure they saw the same thing. And there were some people in the wrestling journalism community that when this first thing came up realized eh, it's you know an unproven inexperienced guy with the personalities involved it that wasn't uncle dave i'm talking about but there were people and it's just now it's more obvious to everybody that they can't ignore it's happened out in front of them but that's the thing when you've been again if you're a chemist, right, and you've been an experienced chemist for 30 years, you know that this compound and that compound and this chemical, if you mix that, you get nitroglycerin or whatever, right? You don't have to mix it and wait for it all to blow up to know what you're going to get. When you see the three chemicals, because you've been doing this shit for 30 years, you go, if you mix those up, that shit's going to blow up. You've got an inexperienced boss and booker who's the same person who's never done this before at any level, much less national television. You've got veteran wrestlers with name value that saw a money mark. You've got new wrestlers, indie wrestlers that have never been on television or done anything to this extent. And you see, they see him as a way to get on TV. And of course, they probably think he's a great booker because he's booking them on TV and they've never seen what a fucking booker does before. So they don't know the difference. You put people in positions that they didn't know how to do, either at all or at that level. People that believed their own publicity and thought they were the greatest wrestling stars in the world. And then when they got real stars, the jealousy started bubbling up because guess what? I don't care how over Kenny and the Cucamonga kids thought that they were in their world. They were never CM Punk over, even Chris Jericho over, or Brian Danielson over. Although Danielson's such a nice guy, he stays out of, you know, bickering. But it's, it's not that easy, or somebody else would have done it. It's not just the money. And there's been a lot of people that tried to do it that had more of everything else besides the money. But they didn't have the money. So Tony had the money. But as we're finding out now, he didn't have most everything else and wasn't smart enough to put that together. And he is... And I'll one more thing, and I'll close this comment up. He promoted a bunch of people in talent relations to work under him, but talk to the boys that may be fine people, but again, have never done any of that before. 
So there you go. Well, I don't know. I think it's a great idea to put Tony Schiavone in a big talent relations position. But Jim, when you talk about all the decisions Tony Khan has made, good and bad, I would have to think someone in his position, you know, when he comes from means, he has a lot of money. I would have to think he may be distracted from AEW because he's spending a lot of time investing in fine art. Well, you know, that's true because he's he's collected football players and soccer players and wrestlers, but the real way to make the money, folks, is collecting fine art. And you know our friends at Masterworks, they have been kicking ass. Have you heard about this? Brian, have you have you read the news? You know, right anymore, if you put money in the stock market, it's a gamble. You might as well be going to Las Vegas. Put everything on 21 black. You never know. The market's up. It's down. It's sideways. You never know what's going on. But folks, with Masterworks, do you know that Masterworks has given an average return, an average net return of 29% to their members? 29%. That's like $100,000 in, $130,000 out. Bing, bang, boom. Just like that. Holy mackerel. Can you get a 30% return these days in the stock market? Last month, Masterworks sold another painting for a 33.1% return while the market was nuking everybody else's 401ks. Brian, has your 401k been nuked? I mean, I'm all right, but I still think Masterworks is a wonderful investment idea. Yes, because if they gave a 33.1% return on a painting they sold last month, and the last six have given an average net return of 29%. Now, if gasoline is up 74% and the stock market is down 16% and Masterworks is giving returns of 29 to 33.1%, well, then you have, ladies and gentlemen, a 47.8% chance of making money with Masterworks. And I got that right from Scott Steiner, and he is a financial genius. Don't forget, he actually owns the Shoney's. He's not, and he oh. doesn't anymore. But anyway, go ahead. Shoney's went out of business. Someone told me he sold it. Well, good. And then he got his money back. But maybe not what he would have got with Masterworks. Instead of <laughs> buying the Shoney's breakfast bar, he should have <laughs> bought a piece of a Van Gogh. Folks, anyway, the Masterworks, folks, they got an A-plus rating from the Better Bus Business Bureau or the Better Business Bureau. That which, of course, the Better Business Bureau has over 530,000 members, and Masterworks gets an A+. That means that out of 530,000 members, to get an A-plus rating, well, that's there's a 1,474% chance of that not happening, according to my math. Uh, that's not math. I don't know what it is that you're doing. What do you think about the Better Business Bureau? Do you think more companies should use the word bureau? Yes, bureau is an underrated word these days because a bureau, it, it intimates a collective group of people that are working together for the common good, right? The Bureau of Investigation, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, they're trying to, they're regulating things, they're keeping an eye on things. Bureaus are very good things. And business, that's a good thing. And if, if, if you're better, then that's an even better thing. So the Better Business Bureau, that's fantastic. And that's what Masterworks belongs to, folks. So I'm telling you, what are you laughing at? Uh, it's, it's, 
it's better to do business with a bureau. That's right. I wouldn't recommend nonsense to you guys. These people at Masterworks, they're good people. They use their left and right turn indicators. We've talked about them many times. They're trying to make you some money. We've met with their people to talk about how amazing this opportunity is. And so many of you signed up before that they want to offer all of you now priority access. You can skip the wait list and you can get in on this. You can get a piece of that Rembrandt and cash in and have your own island to the South Pacific even quicker by skipping the wait list. Go to masterworks.art slash gym. That's masterworks.art slash gym. And before you do that, you can see important regulation aid disclosures. I'm not sure whether they come from the Better Business Bureau or not, but they're important and they concern disclosures on regulation A. And you can see that at masterworks.com slash CD. But anyway, skip the wait list. Make money. Masterworks.art slash Jim. That's right. Well, there were no slashings backstage at AEW. But there was this incident. I asked you before, what do you do about Andrade? You brought up the Eddie Kingston incident. Now there's this. What do you do about Sammy Guevara if you're Tony Khan? Oh, <laughs> what do you do with the problem like Sammy? Um, I mean, what has he done? Think about this. He started out. Originally, I think he was a babyface, wasn't he? Or was he a heel? For a, but he, at the start, he was a babyface for a bit. Then he was a heel. Yeah, he used to come out with like a big boar's head, and they, his nickname was he's the best ever. So I think he was a heel, even though he had a well, big the, boar's head. No, the first week, he, I think it was a panda head, wasn't it? Oh, I don't know. It was some animal. Some animal. Maybe possibly, I was thinking of Moose Cholak. I'm not sure. Possibly a bear. You might be thinking of Moose Cholak or Mantar. You're not sure. Uh, but anyway, the point is, he got over as a heel to the point where then he got over as a babyface. And people were cheering him, and they liked him, and everybody was saying good things about Sammy. The only thing bad they were saying was he's going to fucking kill himself because he's taking all those goofy bumps. But the people were behind him. And then, by becoming basically himself... And, you know, I always say that the, the wrestler, you should always be yourself. In Sammy's case, that was a drastic error. When he ditched the girl he proposed to on national TV and he started playing sticky finger with old Ty. And they started the public makeout sessions and the whole nine yards. People started turning on him and booing him. Not as a heel, but as a, you know what? We're kind of tired of you, you smart ass prick. And he was self-destructing there. And then, you know, the constant uh, personal conflicts with whoever the fuck that he said, hey, his thing with Eddie Kingston was I, we talked to each other and we, you know, uh, uh, we're supposed to go over what we didn't want each other to say in our promos. I, what the fuck? I mean, you know, don't call somebody's mother a whore unless you're Terry Funk and you're talking about Bob Armstrong. And that was entirely permissible because they'd known each other for 25 years. Um, Terry Funk got away with saying the worst shit about everyone he was friends with. Yes. He said yes. the worst shit about Dusty. <laughs> for but that's a, but the thing is, he only talked that way about his true bosom buddies. <laughs> but, 
but it's ridiculous. God damn it. You don't clear shit. You ought to know just as a, as another man, don't call somebody's wife or mother a whore and don't say their children are ugly. But besides that, it's fucking wrestling. And if you don't like what was said about you, then say some sharper shit back and you'll get your point across to the guy and maybe you'll draw some money at the same time. But don't fucking either one of you start fucking yelling in the back because somebody went too far at a promo calling somebody a fat piece of shit. Well, was Eddie going to win? Then that fat piece of shit would have kicked Sammy's ass. But nevertheless, it appears that Sammy thinks he's a bigger star now than he is, and he's floating on top of the world because he hadn't paralyzed himself yet, and he's got a a hot chick, as the kids used to say. But that won't last forever, either the hot chick or the fact that you haven't paralyzed yourself if you keep on doing stupid shit, or if you keep on running that mouth like you're a goddamn member of the Gracie family, Sammy, then somebody else in the locker room may paralyze you first. So my advice to Sammy would be stop showing people so much of your true character because it's done nothing but get you in trouble for the last six months. You know, part of the reason, part of the reason why so many people are surprised or upset about everything that's gone on recently was the whole ethos of AEW was supposed to be we're all friends. You know, we called it all friends wrestling and there was a legitimate truth to that. And then things started getting factored off. Into well, but camps. here's the thing. Here's the thing. It started out as all friends wrestling because all of the people hired to be wrestlers were friends of the, you know, Tinkerbell and the fucking twins. But when they had to open up their roster to more legitimate and or experienced talent instead of the indie darlings and school friends from Cucamonga, that's where people stopped being friends. But what what's the old saying, Brian? It's the wrestling business, not the wrestling friends. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. You know, when people look back on Jim Crockett promotions or Mid-South, it's easy for them to think, oh, everyone was best friends. They were on the road every single day they saw each other. We don't hear about these big <laughs> locker room fights. I mean, every now and then is a story. But in reality, there were guys in those locker rooms that other guys didn't like, right? Yes. And and some had just hated each other. And, and if, you know, I mean, that's going to happen. And again, it's not all friends, the friends business, it's the wrestling business. And there were always guys that didn't like each other or guys that if they'd had their secret wish, somebody across the room from them would have disappeared and burst a fucking flame. But you, and, and that's another thing you mentioned that the guys were on the road every day and were, you know, together all the time. That's what caused a lot of that because a lot of those guys, they'd get mad and, it, but then they'd have it out in some fashion. It'd be over with because it was like, it was like people on your team that you just, you're around too much and they're getting on your fucking nerves. It wasn't, you know, a life or death hatred conflict that we can never be friends and it will never be over. It was, oh, goddamn, I can't take the sound of that fucking guy's voice because I hear it more than my own wife's because we're always together. How many people hated Tully in the locker room in like 86, 87? Nobody, nobody, nobody hated, hated him Tully okay. and wanted Tully to die. I didn't say um, that. I did not say you that. Know, well, hate is a strong word. 
there were a lot of people like Tully's a fucking prick because Tully was a bit of a fucking, he was the, the high school quarterback. He was the son of the promoter, the wrestling star. He was, you know, he was a bit pricklish. And, you know, and if it hadn't been for Flair, a lot more people would have probably told Tully what a prick he was. Uh, but Flair liked him. And, and Arn and Tully. Arn was better friends with Bobby Eaton than he was with Tully Blanchard, if you're talking about outside the ring, just personal friends, hang out and drink a beer. They were more alike. Uh, but at the same time, Arn knew that you know, Tully's his partner and Tully's a great talent. Tully has his strong points, but Tully also is abrasive. And so Arn would call, hey, Wombat, or hey, Eddie Munster, you know, on the plane. He'd give him a little jab, but it was all, you know, that's the thing. Those guys were so good at jousting with each other in a witty way that you couldn't get mad at because everybody else was laughing. And then you had to figure out a way to fucking zing them back that that diffused a lot of the just fuck you fuck you that might have come up because you couldn't fucking get mad at a guy who's just blistered you verbally in an inter entertaining way and now you want to fight him well then you'd look bad but a, a lot of it in those days except if it was an issue that arose from a match or an angle where people thought the other guy was taking liberties or they were being ill treated or whatever it was just from being around people. And that's why a lot of time the baby faces had conflicts because they were in the cars with each other together or the heels had conflicts because they didn't even have to wrestle. They were in the cars with each other together or in the locker room with each other together. And there was just some abrasiveness, but it didn't last long and it didn't disrupt business. When I got to, and and that's nothing if two guys wanted to have a fight in those days. Nobody was going to call the police. Nobody was going to sue anybody. The fans weren't going to ever find out about it. So they did. And whoever won was right. <laughs> and that settled it. The other guy could stick around or leave the territory or whatever. But it 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 wasn't this simmering, bubbling. Uh, the first time I ever saw the the clicks and people taking sides and you know long-term animosity and people really trying to obviously cut each other's nuts off was in the wwf in what 93 4 5 6 7 that era that's the first time i'd seen anything to that extent it always happened but it was isolated or it was here and there but you know that's and i was shaking my head at that point at that time why vince puts up with all this shit but that was nothing compared to this because these were, in in that case, it was still major stars drawing money, experienced professionals and knew what to fucking do in front of the camera. They just had problems behind the camera. And really only Brett and Sean bubbled over in front of the people. So, I, you know, the old days... Everybody's going, well, the fucking guys, they just fought like crazy in the old days. Well, no, you hear the stories, but when there was 25 territories running seven nights a week for 40 fucking years, you're bound to end up with some fights. But in terms of not only frequency, but public embarrassment and fucking childish reasons to begin with over the whole thing, this this little run over the past 
eight weeks or so takes the cake, as far as I can recall. It's going to be really interesting to see how things play out from here. I did want to ask you about something I've been reading. Tony Khan did an interview, and he had some interesting quotes. I want to get your take. With all this going on, all this locker room drama, and I want to remind everyone, right before the CM Punk Young Bucks drama, Tony Khan did an interview saying all that stuff wasn't a big problem, all the backstage issues. It was all being blown out of proportion. People like me and Jim were just making stuff up. He didn't say that, but if you're saying what we're saying isn't true, we're making stuff up, which is fucking ridiculous and you know better. But here's an interview he just did. I have an article from Wrestling Inc. by Dominic D'Angelo with some transcription here. Tony Khan on Busted Open talking about some of the criticism about how he's been building his shows. Here's a quote. I see some of the stuff people say, and I always want to take anything in good faith from the fans. But I do see a lot of people adjacent to the WWE in bad faith talking about the level of build. Well, there's a lot of build around a lot of these matches. And it's also, go back and watch an old wrestling show from the 80s or 90s, and sometimes you'll see two wrestlers wrestling for a spot. Wrestling for the win. Winner's purse. What? He was referring to some of the matches on AEW because people are questioning why. People are questioning his booking more than ever before. But I'm, I don't even know what he's saying. I've been booking for 30 fucking years. I did not understand that fucking just wrestlers wrestling. Is it? Yes. Imagine that. Wrestlers wrestling on a wrestling program. Actually, it says here, Khan was referring to some of the card for tonight's Dynamite as of last night. With Wardlow issuing an open challenge for the TNT Championship, which Brian Cage accepted only yesterday. Oh, Jesus and Christ. And Darby That's Allen versus nut. Jay Lethal is also happening. And then the quote here is, that is a trope in wrestling that needs to continue to be a thing, Khan continued. What? You can call it a cold match if you want, but sometimes things start out of new issues. Not everything is going to have weeks or months of build going into it, although a lot of stuff should. And then the final quote here was the one a lot of people were sending us. In spite of these critiques, Khan also made it clear that he has his eyes on the prize of Dave Meltzer's Booker of the Year. Oh, good God. Noting he has three months left to take the honor home. Here's a quote. <laughs> I'm going to make a full court press to get it. <laughs> and I'm going to let people know right now. There's been a lot of build to a lot of this stuff. And if people have been telling me there hasn't, they're completely full of shit or they're just not paying attention. Oh, my God. That's the fans' fault. Um so much there first of all he's talking about cold matches a cold match is a match between two guys now i kind of see what he's trying to impart there a cold match is a match between two guys with no angle behind it or no rivalry or no ill will it's just brian versus jim let's see who's gonna win that's a cold match and yes i would say in the territory days 95 percent of the television matches were cold matches because you didn't give your angles or your big matches or your money matches or your title matches away on television for free. You made the people buy a ticket to see them in the arena. So the comparison is not valid to begin with there. Secondly, my God, there's a difference between having a cold match of people. It makes sense. It makes sense for wrestler a to wrestle wrestler b if one guy's a baby face and the other guy's a heel and they're both of similar level on the card and whatever the case but it doesn't make any sense 
And this is where he may be talking about people complaining no build, like we talked about earlier in the program. He had Andre in a mask versus career match against a guy he had never wrestled before. It makes no sense to do that. It's like we, we go to the movies and the new Rocky movie is out and they lead the fucking movie with the goddamn main event fight scene where Rocky wins. What are you going to follow it with? But unfortunately, Tony has learned about booking like he's learned about everything else in wrestling from either reading the internet or from talking to his friends in the locker room. And he doesn't understand some of the terminology that he uses or that when it, it may be the proper terminology, but it's not something that's applicable to the situation he's discussing. And if he's the, for the next three months, he's going to put on a full court press to win Booker of the year. That means for the past nine months, he's had pay-per-views, he's had giant gates in brand new cities, and he's had national television, but he hadn't really been trying to win. The most important thing is to win Booker of the Year, a made-up award from a guy that likes him anyway, and he's going to be the winner to begin with because there are no other Bookers anywhere. So... I don't know what to say. When people talk about ways to fix AEW, ways to improve backstage issues, ways to improve the format of the TV show, ways to improve the TV show itself, do you think them and we are being naive because we're missing the big issue, which is this is not a company, and I'm not saying this uh, as a shot or anything, but this is not a company that was built to be a wonderful, successful company. If it becomes a wonderful, successful company, and they've made money, they've spent a lot on a video game, but beyond that, they've made money, and they've had some pretty impressive feats, those are kind of happenstance. Those are kind of, it's nice that that's happened. This whole thing was made to be Tony Khan's project. It wasn't like, I love wrestling, I want to start up a company, I want to fund it, I want the right people to run it. It was, I love wrestling, I want to do it now, this yes. is all mine, and again, I'm not even taking saying this as a shot, but that's just the reality of it. Tony has his hands all over this thing, and it's such a mess because he won't let go of any of it because it's his project. The whole reason it exists is for him to play with it. Even if he believes that the guys are his friends, and even if some of them are his legitimately his friends, that's fine. That's wonderful. However, he's not the guy to run the company because he's not the guy to tell wrestlers what to do. And that's who you need somebody, regardless of who it is to tell, not to ask them what they'd like to do, tell them what to do. Somebody that they respect enough that they will listen. And somebody that is either experienced enough, pragmatic enough, honest with themselves enough to put the right people in positions, even if it's people they don't like. And I'm not just talking about wrestlers. I'm talking about his office staff. Megan, his little legal girl there. Mega, not Megan, Mega. Okay, so her parents didn't know how to spell Megan. It's oh, not my fault. It. Stop it, stop it. What experience does she have in the wrestling industry? What experience does she have in the entertainment business? Nick Khan, the other Khan, is a Hollywood wheeler and dealer and deal maker 
that has experience and has on speed dial every goddamn major corporation and entertainment outlet in California and et cetera, et cetera. And Megan was doing legal for a football team and a soccer team, I guess. We have also, we haven't been, we haven't mentioned that Matt Jackson's wife was in charge of merchandise at the, you know, I guess she is still is. She was at the very start. We haven't heard of that being changed. And what does that entail? Because if pro wrestling tees is actually the one facilitating all the t-shirts, is she just a liaison or what does her position actually entail? Well, I don't know. And I've never bought any AEW merchandise, but if they have some, and if they're trying to sell it, I would probably go after somebody with a lot of years experience in marketing and merchandising a fucking mainstream sports league or professional fucking entertainment company or a major brand. Soleil yeah. or a major brand. Not the per I've done my own merchandise probably more than the bucks lately uh, for years now. And I wouldn't accept nor entertain the idea of going for a job as the head of merchandise in a major company. I'm just across the board. It comes down to what you said. Tony wanted to do this because he's a big wrestling fan and he had the money to buy his company so he could fulfill his teenage fantasies of being the booker and running it. And you're seeing the result of that. We've mentioned before, there were a ton of people, a ton of fans that wanted to get even with Vince McMahon for the way he's treated their favorite wrestlers and wanted to support another company. And they still do. But to grow that into something that would be competitive to the WWE is a whole different fucking issue. And compounding the problem is the lack of experience at every turn in this company who's trying to navigate these shark-infested waters. And the, the fact that you have two sides, you have legitimate pro wrestlers that look at this as a business and want to make money, and you have the indie set that came from Rosita and thinks it's all a clown show and that they're the, the the head clowns and they've been replaced and they don't even realize it. And they still want to be clowns. And those sides are not going to get along. And nobody's there to bring everything together. And the most important thing is everybody in Crockett Promotions didn't like Dusty Rhodes as a person. But there was no way that anybody could deny that he was one of the two biggest stars in the wrestling business that wasn't working for Vince McMahon. And the other one was Ric Flair, and we had him too. And Dusty was the booker, and Flair was the world champion, and each, at one point, wanted to be where the other one was. But they were professional enough to work together, and the point is, everybody else in the locker room said, I may be really good. But I ain't as good as Dusty or Flair because I've not drawn that much money. I can't cut those promos. I haven't been in that position. I want to be. But they could follow those guys because they, even egotistical wrestlers, couldn't legitimately sit there and look themselves in the mirror and say, I'm a bigger deal than Dusty Rhodes or Ric Flair. So they followed those guys into battle as the generals because they all universally believed that they belonged there. 
Even if people got mad at Dusty the way he booked him, or even if people got mad at Flair because he didn't see him at whatever level. And there's no there's no general here. There, who would you follow into battle? You're asking Triple H, Dusty yeah. Rhodes, or Tony Khan? Yes. I wouldn't follow Tony Khan. He would be the third choice. He'd be the best funded, but he did that interview. Where I guess it may have been the press scrum. I forget if we talked about this or not, but he talked about the fact that the way he thinks from his days as a bartender to now is he's a service person. It's all about servicing either the customer or the person you're dealing with. That's different than being the boss, the boss and someone who's a leader. The boss hires people that are good at customer service because you want the customers happy, but the boss is not the one out there fucking blowing each and every one of them. Tony's getting serviced or he's getting serviced by his entire roster. Oh, okay. I thought there would be another line after that, but no, I'm just Tony is getting serviced by his and he's getting bent over and serviced well by his entire roster. And he and he doesn't know a fucking thing to do about it. Well, he has nothing to worry about. He has Chris Jericho by his side. Nothing could go no, wrong no. now. The, the head service technician. The head service technician, Chris Jericho. But Jim, let's move on. Let's get some more questions here. Let's get some questions here on the show. <laughs> As I look through these, let's go to our next one. This was sent to cornydrivethru at gmail.com from Charlie in Starkville, Mississippi. Oh, boy. Jake Roberts recently took credit for mentoring some of WWF's top stars early in their careers. Roberts said, quote, Without me, there is no Undertaker. Without me, there is no Steve Austin. What? I even helped Shawn Michaels as much as I could. Oh, boy. What are your thoughts on Jake taking credit for mentoring WWE legends? I mean, you know, again, Jake worked with Undertaker when Undertaker first started in the WWF. And yes, Jake was there in the King of the Ring final with Austin. Um, was he working a lot with Austin behind the scenes, preparing him for his run as Stone Cold? No, fuck it. <laughs> However, Jake talked Vince into it. And, and let me say this with the undertaker. Yes. Jake may very well have given Mark, you know, advice or sat down and talked to him or whatever. When they worked together, when taker was first there, I, I can't say that that wouldn't have happened. I think that the undertaker without the presence of Jake Roberts in his life would probably have ended up in the same place, same way. Everything would have worked out pretty much the same with Austin. No, that, that was the period of time where Jake had talked Vince into giving him a job again, said, Oh yeah, you know, and, and Vince was always looking for people for the creative team, unfortunately. And a lot of people in wrestling had said for years, what well, Jake, you know, the way he can talk and he's got the psychology he got, he, took very few bumps but he got the people into his matches he was a he knew the wrestling business mentally and that's true the problem was jake is one of those guys that you know you those who the statement is those who can't do teach well the opposite of that is sometimes the best coaches are not necessarily the star players right that's right and 
So Jake could get himself over and could talk for himself and knew how to put his matches together. But I never really particularly saw any brilliance in Jake trying to book for other people or in Jake trying to impart his psychology to other people. It worked for him, it did, but he was a different case. It, it didn't work for everybody. And so Vince was trying to, and we've talked about it before, trying to, he put Jake on the creative team, trying to get something out of him like that. And he was still working, not, not necessarily a full schedule, but some part of schedule around in between middle of 96 through early 97. That's when that experiment came. And we told the story about our shotgun Saturday night and Jake showing up nine and a half hours late to the taping, put an end to the experiment. but. But no, Austin got the 316 line because Jake was at the time doing the born-again Christian, I've redeemed myself bit. And so that's the line. You know, where you say, well, John says this. Well, Austin 316 says, I just whipped your ass. That peripheral involvement, Austin's matches with Jake's matches at that point in time were bloody fucking rotten. Because he was, he wasn't that old, but with the miles on his body and the fact that he hadn't taken care of himself and the style had picked up in tempo, go back and watch Jake's 1996 matches, bleh, right? And let's remember how it started. He got booked for that Royal Rumble and it popped a surprising number. And then all of a sudden Jake was there every week. Yes. And... Again, it's the Royal Rumble. We've talked about it. That's a wonderful time to bring people back and nostalgia and et cetera, but that doesn't mean they need to be added to the creative team and the roster. So that was the peripheral involvement that Jake had with Steve Austin and 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 the, the his rise. And again, he may have given him some advice in the locker room, but once again, besides Austin, 316 might not have come up, so Jake can... Crow all he wants about those t-shirt sales, but Steve Austin, the talent, would have gone in the same direction if he'd beat somebody else at King of the Ring instead of Jake. So, you know, I'm not trying to diminish Jake as the talent that he was, but for him to say that, oh, well, The Undertaker wouldn't be anybody or Steve Austin wouldn't be anybody without me, oh, please. That was a, (laughs) talk about a favor fucking job. That was a favor job that he was given. And let's just bring it all out in the open since I'm grumpy today and we're here. The guy is such a fucking failure as an adult male human being that he gets a job for the WWE when nobody else in the wrestling business is anxious to hire him. And he comes up there with no fucking driver's license because he hasn't had charge of his own fucking life. And so he's got no driver's license, so people have to fucking carry him around. Not only me, I have to fucking stop in Stanford and pick him up and take him to Vince's house on Wednesdays. Bruce Pritchard had to pick him up and take him to the office sometimes. He would ride with the boys, and as a member of the office, as a member of the creative team, he actually made the Godwins, uh, Phineas and fucking Mark Canterbury, stop in Stamford and go to a crack house on the way to Madison Square Garden while they're carrying him in their car because he don't have a driver's license. And then he fucking 
He was supposed to come up on Mondays and go home on Friday afternoons because he was still living in Atlanta and work in the office and do writing and everything up until that point. Well, then, and hey, I'm not criticizing anybody for trying to get out of that office. I did on a regular basis, but I lived there. I made the move. They're flying him up and back from Atlanta. He's supposed to come up on Monday morning, go back on Friday afternoon. Well, then he starts coming up on Monday afternoon, going back on Friday morning. And then the phone call would come. That, well, gosh, the kids are sick, so I'm going to come on Tuesday. And then he said, well, shit, I got to get home because I think Cheryl, he was still married to her at the time. She's sick, and I got to get back on Friday morning. And then, and then the week came that he called and said, well, I don't think I'm going to be up there. We're all sick. It was a goddamn plague-ridden home at the Roberts' house. So that was, and again, everybody says I'm hard to get along with. All I demand is perfection. Everywhere I've ever showed up for a job, I had my own transportation, a fucking driver's license, my own goddamn insurance. I was a grown adult man able to take care of my business and get myself from place to place without assistance. But anyway, but that was Jake's um, sojourn there, and and no, he was a he was a big star. He was a great wrestler in his day, till his personal habits, picadillos, and demons destroyed his mind, body, and everything else. And he would have lasted longer in the business had not all that happened. And he was very good at what he did, but I didn't see anything to Jake while working with him as a booker because he wasn't really trying. And at that time, I, I I don't see that he was contributing mightily to any other young upcoming prospects. And when he left, no one rushed to hire him. No, he went back home and stayed there. No, he didn't just stay there. He did the Barry Blaustein movie. Oh shit, that's right. I forgot about that. Well, no, they, they were already they were already in process. Of, no, that was later. Yeah. So there you're you're right. All right, well, that was Jake's contribution to Shawn Michaels, Steve Austin, and The Undertaker. Let's get another question here. Jim, this now, one... He might have he might have taught Shawn Michaels some shit, but I think none of it probably revolved around wrestling. Most of it probably revolved around pharmaceuticals. You could say a lot of things about Shawn Michaels. I've never heard about him drinking his own piss. But let's get our next question here, Jim. Sent the corny drive-thru at gmail.com from William in Baltimore. I have often heard of listeners asking who is the best wrestler or even a Mount Rushmore of wrestling. However, I would be curious to hear your thoughts on who would be on the Mount Rushmore of the worst wrestlers ever. Oh, oh my God. Um, see, I don't know whether that would be a Mount Rushmore, maybe whether that would be one of those posters of just, you know, like fucking thousands of people's faces or like a Sgt. Pepper album cover or something. Um, I mean, immediately you've got to narrow that down a little bit further because the worst wrestler ever would be somebody that probably none of us have ever seen or heard of. That goes into what I was wondering, because when you said Moxley's the worst wrestler today, a few months back, you said it's because of the way he's being used, because he's out there. He's not a wrestler you haven't heard of. He's all over the show. So when you talk about the worst wrestler ever, do you think it has to be someone who no one's ever seen who was terrible or someone? who was used prominently in terrible. Well, that's what I'm saying. It depends on what you're going for. I mean, you, you can look at any of these 
clips of indie goofballs on Twitter, you know, trying to set their heads on fire, you know, coming off the roof or whatever. And you can just watch them try to hit the ropes and take a hip toss. You go, well, that's the worst fucking wrestler I've ever seen. But the thing is, nobody's really seeing them. The only reason they're seeing them is on Twitter. In the building, there's 50 people and nobody knows they exist. And then you've got, you know, the, the ultimate warrior. Is he the worst wrestler of all time that actually got big and made money? Because he he was he never had a good match and was always the shits at both promos and in ring. But because he made all that money because Vince had the fetish over bodybuilders, does that qualify him to be removed from the list of world's worst wrestlers because he made millions of dollars at it? Um, We need more guidance here. Is it the worst because his shit looked incredibly phony, or is he the worst because his shit was so fucking stiff and hard that it would hurt anybody he came in contact with? Is it the giant fat guy that somebody said, well, hey, there's an 800-pound human waterbed. He should be a professional wrestler. And all he can do is fucking blob around and fall on somebody, or is it the guy that's 126 pounds and looks like a medical school skeleton, and he can run around and do shit, but it's visually preposterous, and you go, why'd they let him in the ring? There's no way to... There have been so many bad wrestlers of various kinds marina schaefer but we don't know her so <laughs> it took me a second <laughs> yes. that's the so so what kind of bad wrestling are you looking for and and who do we nominate i mean there's no way to i mean we we talk about a list of you know, major league candidates on this program every week, but there's so many more that are even shittier than that that are out there in, in the local halls and bars and things and such and parking lots that you can't really give anybody that honor. Who's the absolute worst? If you base it on what we actively watch, active wrestlers on AEW's roster and WWE's roster, if you had to pick two or three from each roster to have a list of five, or I guess six in some cases. Oh, Jesus. Who are the worst of the active people you watch? Well, ag again, you know, Moxley is obviously, he's not the worst wrestler in the world if you view it in a vacuum, right? Just watch the, I don't know who this guy is. I'm just watching his movements and have him having a match with somebody. He's not the worst. But when you take into account that he's supposed to be on top and he's supposed to be an experienced veteran and he can do better probably not great, but better, but he refuses to because he loves garbage death match wrestling. And he's a fan of the bank addicted drug robber and thinks that stuff is just swell. Then that takes him down a bunch of notches because here's a guy that actually wouldn't be the shits, except he's being the shits on purpose because the way he fucking thinks about things. And then you have Marina Schaefer, who, remember she had a match with a girl here not long ago where she was putting holds on that weren't even holds and trying to figure out how to bend the girl's leg back. Um, big Swole, I, when I, she was there, would have been big a Big Swole, she was a candidate. Yeah. Right? Legitimately, someone and, who couldn't really do the basics in the ring and messed up almost every match. 
that's a legitimate candidate for worst wrestler on an active yeah. roster. And the aid in AEW, the women's roster has more of the candidates, but in the WWE, well, I mean, let take NXT out of the equation because Jesus, you know, that's the whole idea is they don't know what they're doing, but almost Jesus Christ. You know, if, if you're just, he's visually impressive, but goddamn all his shit looks, looks phony and, or like he's in quicksand. So I, again, I'd have to sit down with a list of all the active wrestlers in the world and do a bunch of sub lists and then maybe open it up for voting. I don't know. Jim, our next question sent to corny drive through at gmail.com from Alex in Merrimack, New Hampshire. In where? Oh, excuse me, Merrimack. I mispronounced that completely. Not that that improved anything, but Merrimack, New Hampshire. When watching the Steiner brothers, I'm struck by how underrated bump takers they were. Ugh. Scott's scary bump at WrestleMania 9 versus the Head Shrinkers comes to mind. Rick doing a belly-to-belly -to, -belly to an opponent while on top of Tatsumi Fujinami's shoulders. Yeah. Are they underrated on how innovative and realistic they were? And I guess he left it out at the end, but it was all over the title of this. And taking bumps, I guess, specifically. Yes, they were underrated. When you look back, well, I don't say they were underrated. They were so much better than we realized at the time once we had wrestlers of that caliber taken away from us. But if you go back and look at the Steiner, the early 90s Steiners were the best babyface tag team in the business. They're amazing. You go back and watch those matches, it's like nothing else in wrestling. It's incredible. Yeah, because they were both not only incredible athletes, but they could come up with that shit that they could invent on the fly, and both of them were strong enough to pull anything they wanted to do off, no matter what size of their opponent. And talk about the bumps, the scary bumps. They looked like they were taking, they didn't take classic wrestling school bumps. And, you know, of course, it, it caught up with them eventually because both Rick and Scott, I mean, they've had their physical issues and, you know, they're a little stumped up and stove up or whatever, but they were in such good shape. They were so jacked up. And they threw themselves into everything. The only thing I can think similar to a Steiner bump is like Buzz Sawyer, who was built similar and had a similar physical toughness to him, just a complete prick and not as good of people. But he would just fling himself through the ropes to the concrete. And he didn't care where he landed. And it always, even though the Steiners were in control, they had a way of looking like they were out of control when they were taking those bumps. And you'd be scared and you, oh shit. But then you'd, if you really watched them and paid attention and noticed, you'd see that they took a lot of those bumps the same way every time. They're doing it on purpose. It's just nobody else could get away with that. They'd break every bone in their body. Uh, but between, you know, Scotty being so strong, such a moose that he can belly to belly fucking Ray Candy, but then leap up and do that Frankensteiner freestanding. And, you know, and Rick, we've said, you know, the only reason that that Rick kind of became known as the other Steiner when Scotty became a single is because Rick was 
came a little bit earlier, and a lot of people didn't see some of his best stuff in in Louisiana or right when he came to Crockett. Uh, but he was tremendous as well, and Rick actually was probably not only a little bit better worker, but had the personality of the team when they were together because Scotty didn't turn into superstar Billy Graham until much later on, but Rick, the dog-faced gremlin, he was the fucking star of the team when they first got together. But, yeah, just work-wise, and they'd never hurt you, unless they might have wanted to. But, you know, they let's face it, they could have had their way with Bobby and Stan, the Midnight Express, at any point in time. And we had some of our best matches with them. And it never potatoed anybody. And were, like I said, strong enough to put you where you needed to be, where you were taken care of. and. And they loved working with us because we would we would cheat and attack them from behind or use my racket or use an object or, you know, in some way not just outman them like the, you know, the other bigger teams may have wanted to do. They always wanted the skyscrapers or whatever. They wanted to test the Steiners. Well, we weren't testing anybody. We were taking bumps and having a great match with them. And then when the time came, they'd sell their ass off for us. The, the Steiners and the Road Warriors sold more and better for the Midnight, who were the smallest guys they'd wrestle, than anybody else. And the reason for that was because by the time the match was over, they realized, both teams, that the Midnight had given them the best match they'd had in a while and put them over more and done their shit and never taking advantage of them by taking over face to face. It was always a heel move or whatever. So, you know, anyway, that, that was the thing is Steiners and road warriors and guys like that as baby faces, you need to have, you needed to have a really devious heel team to put to match together. Right. And then they could do all their shit. But when they're up against you know, the skyscrapers or the barbarian warlord or whoever the fuck is, you know, is as big as they are and as strong as they are. It was unwieldy because everybody had Doc and Doc and Gordy. Those were some uh, fucking, you know, uh, ball buster matches. But it was more stiff shit and everybody trying to get their stuff in. Yeah, you remember seeing some of those. If you go back and you watch the Steiner Brothers between mid-1989 and at least 92, although I would argue you can go to at least 94, they're the most remarkable tag team of that era. And those matches, when you watch them now with a modern eye, after watching AEW Dynamite every week or watching <laughs> Raw, it stands out just how spectacular they were, how over they were. Even when the crowd started going down because WCW was run so poorly, people were losing their fucking minds for the Steiner brothers. They were super over. They were believable. And they should be in any Hall of Fame that covers tag team wrestling because they are the, they were, and it was ignored for a long time, but they were, post-Midnight Express, the best domestic tag team for several years. Yeah. And they didn't get a run like they should have in the WWF. And that and When they came up, what they started in 92, because they were there when we got there, right? I think they had signed a one-year contract. The very, very, very end of 92, early 93, because they finished up in WCW at the end of 92, they had problems with Watts. 
That's right. So they go up to New York, and by the time that we get there in July, they're the tag team champions. And we had that match with them at um, SummerSlam in, in their hometown, Auburn Hills, Detroit. That tore the house down, and their family was there and the whole thing. And I'm thinking, wow, we could do a nice program with them. And they liked working with Tom and Jimmy because it was the same flavor as the Midnight, and we had history. So, again, if you go back and watch that tag match at SummerSlam, you can tell the Steiners are loving this shit because they got to do different shit with, you know, a Southern-style heel tag team that took bumps. And then I got them booked in Smoky Mountain. Uh, what that was, SummerSlam was the end of August. Uh, they were September 93. Well, no, it was October is when they came oh. to Smoky Mountain. SummerSlam was the was August 30th, right? That's right. I thought that the signers were in September. You're right. It was October. No, it was the first week of October. With Sherry. Uh, exactly. Sherry Martell was there to manage um, Tracy Smothers against Brian Lee with Tammy. And then the main event was the Smoky Mountain tag title. And I wanted to have the WWF tag team title on the line. but. I'd got the Steiners booked and then I got to TV and Pat Patterson came up to me and said, I've got to talk to you. We're going to switch the belts and put the belts on the Mountie and whoever, who was the Quebecers, the Quebecers. Yeah. And he said, but you can still have the Steiners, but we can't have the WWF tag. I said, all right, thank you anyway. And so then I went and talked to the Steiners and they said, well, they weren't happy about it. There was some business going on with the them in the office that I don't know exactly what the deal was, but that's apparently why they took the belts off of the Steiners. Steiners weren't happy about losing the belts, especially. I don't think they possibly got along with Jacques. I could be wrong. <laughs> they wouldn't be the first. They wouldn't be the first. Um, but anyway, so they said, well, we don't know whether we're going to be here too much longer. And I'm like, oh, shit. Well, are you going to make? Oh, yeah, we'll make your towns. I had them for four days. Knoxville, Johnson City, Barberville, and God damn it, I forget where. But anyway, originally, when it was going to be the WWF tag team title on the line, I was just going to disqualify the bodies across the board. We're not obviously not going to switch the WWF tag team title. And since it was a Smoky Mountain tag team title, which the bodies were, obviously still I've got a visiting, you know, tag team champions, even if their title were ex-tag team champions. Now their titles aren't on the line, but it's the Steiner brothers. I'm not just going to say, okay, guys, we'll beat you four straight. So I pitched the idea. I said, we got the TV cameras. What about if we do a different finish each night you go over the first night, we go over the second night, you get disqualified the third night, we just get disqualified the fourth night, everybody comes out of it even, and we can maybe bring this back. And they said, well, the only problem with that is we ain't going to do any jobs because we don't know what the fuck they're doing with us up there, and we may be going back to Japan. I said, all right, in that case, get Arnold out of the car. And that's when we brought Arnold the pit bull in and he was their manager and we just did DQs every night and the people loved seeing the dog chase me and the heavenly bodies around. Does Arnold get a payoff? Arnold did get paid, as a matter of fact. I had Hildebrand go out and get Arnold a big fucking sack of dog food. 
but anyway, so that's and then within, I guess within a few weeks they were gone from the WWE. So they didn't even stay the year. I don't think they and whatever the falling out was and all that bullshit. That's what they left and went back to Japan. And that's kind of the end of the glory period of the Steiner brothers, the end of the WWF run. That's really yeah. the end of it. And then Scott got really big and it changed the way he worked and injuries started settling in and eventually they broke up and we saw what happened. But for a few years there, for a five-year run, they were the best team in the United States. But Jim, they looked very different. You know, Scott had a lot of hair on his head. Yep, yeah. Didn't have a lot of hair on his face at that time. And also his body looked like he was, must have been shaving himself down. Rick, a very hairy man. Rick was a hairy man. Rick had had hair all over his body. He had hairy balls. He had hairy armpits. Well, he had hairy <laughs> knuckles. <laughs> Didn't know you were going to go right there, but yeah, he just he was a hairy <laughs> hairy fella. But I'll tell you what, folks, you don't have to be. Oh, no, you don't. You no. do not have to be so her suit. You do not have to be covered with foliage from head to toe. You don't have to be shaggy. You don't have to be all stinky and covered with mildew because all the sweat mixes in with all of your crotch hair and and all that white cheese starts forming everywhere in your folds and and oh. in the nether regions. You know that has an odor too. Cuz it's mildew and it's it's actually well it's sort of like you're you're cooking blue cheese down in your crotch. Oh, come on. Well, folks, but it's fresh ball fall. It's the season of pumpkin spice and making sure your crotch looks nice. That means sipping cider in a fall breeze and using Manscaped products to trim your balls with ease. Folks, that's right. Today's program is brought to you possibly by the for the last time by our fine friends at Manscaped, a company here to make sure that your foliage isn't the only thing shedding its excess leaves. I'm telling you now, you know, it always makes the tree trunk look bigger in fall when the leaves fall off. If you clear out all the brush around the tree, it's standing there loud and proud. And folks, whether you're brand new to the program or you've already been with us, you've already tasted the Manscaped products, you could use the crown jewel of care for your family jewels, what they've come out with now, the Platinum Package 4.0. I'm telling you what, it's a 10-part package. And Brian, you know that you love to have a 10-part package. There's the Lawnmower <laughs> 4.0 body trimmer. That comes in, it's got the LED light. My God, you, 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 it reduces the nicks and the cuts and the slashes and the, the you know, self-mutilation that you can go through with some items. Also, the Weed Whacker nose and ear hair trimmer. So you can clear your ears and your nose out and you can hear better. And you can smell better. Well, you're going to smell better. You want other people to smell better when you clear your nose out. And also in the Platinum Package 4.0, the Ultra Premium Body Wash, the Ultra Premium 2-in-1 Shampoo and Conditioner, the Aluminum-Free Ultra Premium Deodorant, or as our friends across the pond would say, Aluminium-Free. I didn't even know that there was aluminum in deodorant. But they have got now deodorant with no aluminum in it. Maybe that's what happened to the Tim Tin Woodsman. Do you think that's it? <laughs> he was Tim using Woodsman? deodorant with aluminum in it, and it it just went too far. Maybe that's what happened to Tim Woods. There you go. And also the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, the Crop Reviver Ball Toner. That's in the performance or the Platinum Package 4.0. And 
they'll throw in two free gifts, the Manscaped Boxers and the Shed Travel Bag, which are both specifically made to hold your goodies. So, folks, these products are guaranteed to be hits for your dangly bits. So, go to manscaped.com right now. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code DRIVE on the Platinum Package 4.0. 20% off, free shipping, manscaped.com when you use the code DRIVE. And do not have blue cheese in your crotch this fall because heaven knows... We don't want to have to put any chicken wings down there and get all that sauce down. That could be, boy, you know, chicken wing sauce on your taint. That would be a difficult thing to to come back from. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a good idea. So don't dip your chicken wings in the blue cheese that you're growing in your crotch. Get the perform the Platinum Package 4.0 from Manscaped and make things nice and slick and clean. Well, Jim, speaking of slick and smooth, we have another slick and smooth WWE exit to report here. Breaking right now as we are recording on Twitter, Jimmy Smith at Jimmy Smith MMA just wanted to say, now that the story is officially out, that my time with WWE is officially done. Officially used several times there. <laughs> Had a lot of fun and met some great people, really and truly blown away by the acceptance from the WWE fans. You folks make it work every week, and your enthusiasm was amazing. And it's also being reported now, Variety reporting, Jimmy Smith's out, SmackDown will be Michael Cole and Wade Barrett coming up from NXT, Raw will be Corey Graves and Kevin Patrick, with Kathy Kelly returning to be an interviewer backstage, and Vic Joseph and Booker T will be the NXT commentators, so any thoughts Wait on- Wait a minute, hold on, whoa! Now- they're playing musical announcers here. Booker T, he hasn't been doing any program lately. No. And he's not color, and he's going to do color on NXT. And which one's Jimmy? Uh, Jimmy Smith MMA was his Twitter. I guess he was just stopping by. He didn't intend to stay. Or he would have changed his Twitter to Jimmy Smith Wrestling. He's maybe. one of these guys that's a legitimate sports broadcaster that they hired and immediately tried to teach him to commentate their way, <laughs> which sucks. And which it's counterproductive sucks. to having fans care about what the announcer is saying. But, you know, here's the thing. We never really talk about the announcers on Raw or SmackDown or NXT because I don't really pay any attention. We zip through the on-cameras because the shows are interminable. Uh, every announcer they have sounds alike. So you can't really tell by listening. They all say the same things with the same cadence and the same kind of put on announcer voice. That's right. We just say everything right here because we like to have fun and freedom here in WWE where everything's wonderful. Look at my hands, constant motion while I'm talking so that you're not distracted. But in reality, you're not paying attention to anything I'm saying. And you're just watching some crazy guy run his mouth while his hands are moving all over the place. Their commentating sucks. <laughs> now wait a minute don't hurt yourself there pal but anyway we wish jimmy smith all the best in his future endeavors I, I couldn't pick him out of a police lineup right now we've been watching these shows on and off for a while but that's that's the thing they taught michael cole how to announce the way they wanted and then michael cole's taught everybody else and they even have his voice and there's you you instantly 
recognized Gordon Soley. You instantly recognized Jim Ross. You instantly recognized Lance Russell. You instantly recognized Bob Caudle. You instantly recognized Pickett, Sam Meneker, for fuck's sake. Any territory announcer, different voice, different style, more, I mean, more off the cuff instead of just prepackaged, prepared, homogenized, pasteurized commentary, pitching shit and selling you shit every second. They called the matches and you knew their voices and they had their own styles. And like the wrestlers, they had their own styles and their own way of talking and their own way of wrestling. And it's now, now the announcers sound all the same, talking about all the same shit that all the same looking wrestlers do. Having fake conversations. That's the thing. WWE yeah. took one of the most important things out of commentary, which was the conversational aspect. Not every moment could be Jim Ross screaming what's happening. What makes that important are the moments where he's not screaming, where he's talking to a Paul Heyman or a Jim Ross or a Jim Cornette, and he's having a conversation, maybe laughing or anything at the right moment. But when the whole well, he, show, he was laughing if he was talking to me, he was probably miserable if he was talking to Paul. But go ahead again, using that as an example. But when the whole yeah. show is just an announcer screaming at you nonstop and nothing sounds, nothing is being screamed at you in a legitimate sounding way, genuine, nothing genuine. It's dog shit. It's counterproductive. It's the reason why people watch Raw on mute. It's the reason why people hate Michael Cole. Michael Cole, there's an argument to be made that Michael Cole, because of the way he's been used and how prominent he's been, and Michael Cole-ism, which is his brand of broadcasting, which everyone there has now, Michael Cole is probably the most damaging and maybe the worst <laughs> wrestling commentator of all time just because of that role. And you know what? Here's the thing. I like Michael Cole as a person. I never had one crossword with Michael Cole, and he's a nice guy. But he, they, he came to that job having been a, a news reporter and having been a, as Kevin Dunn would say, a real TV guy. And he didn't know that much of anything about wrestling, and they taught him how to do what they wanted him to do. And now it's been so long. People that want to be wrestling announcers imitate Michael Cole instead of Jim Ross or Gordon Soley or fucking Lance Russell or whatever. And, and that's the problem. So I don't want people to think that we're saying Michael Cole is an asshole who, who did all this on purpose. Michael Cole's a nice guy who did all this by accident. And he sucks. I mean, let's not forget that <laughs> before we wrap things up. He's just not good at this. He's good at screaming say, in their say, way, but that's but not But you know good. what? There was one time, there was one show, I think, didn't he do an NXT or something a few years oh, ago? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was something the biggest bunch of shit. All of a sudden, Where? he does the NXT UK show, and people are like, look at how good he is without Vince. No, he sucks. His voice, as soon as you hear his voice, it puts you in the mindset of, this is an idiot wrestling commentator who's going to talk to me like I'm an idiot because he can't acknowledge that his whole life is fucking fake. I can't deal with this. <laughs> fucking, right. His real name isn't even Michael Cole. He ever gets fired, he's done. Give me a break. I won't even try anymore, ladies and gentlemen. So Jimmy Smith leaving WWE. He's gone. Wave bye-bye. Let's get another question here on the show, Jim. This one was sent to CornyDriveThrough at gmail.com. How can we miss him if he won't go away? 
Well, we'll see if you missed this question. This was sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Brad Stutz. Seeing as Stutzy, Stutzy. You know this man. He's from North Kakalaka. And you know everyone from North Carolina. That's right. Seeing as we just passed the anniversary on October 2nd of the Ring of Honor Midnight Express reunion from 2004, oh. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that event and how it came to be. Was this the first time that the rest of the team had seen Dennis since the 80s? Did everyone meet up at the venue or get together beforehand? Was this when the rest of the team finally learned why Dennis left in 1987, or had that been addressed among you before that? And finally, does Jim recall why the Q&A that was filmed that afternoon before the show was never released by Ring of Honor? Yes. Because <laughs> whoever was shooting it fucked up and the audio was unusable. Unu it was audio it was unusual also, but it was unusable. Yes. <laughs> um... Okay, first of all, that was technically the first full reunion. And I hadn't realized uh, or remembered it was first week of October until he mentioned that. But the actual first reunion was the weekend before in Kingsport, Tennessee. Me and Bobby and Dennis. I guess, I believe, it, the Rock and Roll Express. As a matter of fact, I know it was. Um, And then Stan wasn't there for that one. and then. Everybody was in Philly for Ring of Honor. And the way that it came about was that Dennis had been living in Colorado since 1988, I guess, and or 87. And he had finally, he had moved back to Alabama. And in the process, somebody got his phone number and he went to a show in uh somewhere in alabama and just to visit guys and when everybody saw there's dennis condry well the word got to us and the uh you know i think i called who did i call to see if they had his number but anyway we heard dennis was back around so and i'm trying to remember who called who first it's been almost 20 years right but anyway we talked on the phone and because not only now did that Dennis was back in in public, did we want to talk to him and see what had gone on, but also now that Dennis had been seen, Bobby was available. I was in OVW, but I could do whatever the fuck I wanted. Stan, you know, was available because he had quit the business years before and was doing the boat racing thing. So people started calling to see if we wanted to get back together. And uh, Bobby, at, at the time, I don't know if he was living in the Tri-Cities at the time. He, he'd been roommates with Jeff Tankersley. And I believe Jeff was the guy who promoted that first reunion. And, um, and then, obviously, I was doing a bit of work with Gabe Sapolsky, and they wanted the first full Midnight Express reunion in Philadelphia, the midnight in the eighties, that was our town where we were the most popular with people, even when we were heels, because it was Philly. So they booked it there. So Dennis, we had, I'd seen Dennis the week before. And so had Bobby. And we had talked on the phone before that. And so that's when the phone calls us, when we found out everything that had been going on and what had happened originally. And 
by the time we got to Philly, Stan hadn't seen everybody, but, you know, I mean, he had seen me a few years previous to that and seen Bobby and seen Stan, you know, in, or hadn't seen Dennis in all those years, but that they was cool the, with uh, each other? yes. Remember they were actually partners before Bobby and Dennis were in, in Georgia. Georgia for about what? Six weeks in 80, uh, in 1980. Uh, but no, they, they were cool with each other. I mean, they were never, you know, close friends because Dennis was always a heel. Stan was mostly a baby face when they were together in, in territories. So they had never spent a lot of time with each other, but they were fine. And, and, and we did the reunion and it got over with people in Philly and we did a Q and a that afternoon, which as I've said, the fucking technical difficulties, it was never released. And I remember also we did a, de- a deal with uh, Prince Nana and the embassy, right? Where they were the heels to come in so that the midnight could give somebody a few bumps and Bobby could do the rocket launcher, right? That's what the people wanted to see. And we get Nana down and somebody had him, I think it was Bobby, had slammed him and grabbed his legs and split his legs like the old wishbone. And I got right in between his legs with the racket. And as I'm raising the racket up over my head like Paul Bunyan, I've got my eyes on his nuts. You should have seen Nana's face. He was looking up at me like, oh, God, no. I said, don't move, baby. I got you. And I whacked him with the racket in the nuts, never touched him, but the fucking people went crazy and he sold it like death. And, and we had a, you know, a, a good time. Everybody got to see what they wanted to see. Um, and then because of that, that's when, you know, the first wave of reunion offers started coming through. And for 2000, what, five and six, I did a number of them, but Bobby and Dennis were, wrestling a couple weekends a month by that point and and had a nice little resurgence there until about i think what was it 2009 2010 ish and at that point you know bobby's health got worse and he didn't need to be wrestling except you know a little dab here and there Uh, but they had a nice little run again at the end there and and made more money (laughs) per night on guarantees uh, to do indies than we had made, you know, years before in, on, in the territories. Where do those reunions rank in terms of things that you did throughout your career that made you personally happy? Um, several of them were a lot of fun. Uh, that thing in Philly, just cause it was the first time and we didn't think we were ever going to all be together again, you know, after all those years, that was fun. And some of them, you know, where the the rock and roll matches, the people still enjoyed, even though nobody was in the same shape that they were 20 years previously, the people still enjoyed just seeing the guys in the ring in person. And we'd run through, you know, a few of the trademark spots and get a little heat and go, but no, we didn't, we couldn't get any heat because they were all glad that we were all still breathing. So they were playing along with it. So it wasn't like, the old days in that respect, but it was like the people were so respectful of, of seeing these guys, you know, at that point that they had seen when they were kids that they would boo us and cheer for the rock and roll because that they knew that's what they were supposed to do, but they didn't want to see anything really bad happen to any of us. Like the first time around. Well, Jim, our next question sent to corny drive through at gmail.com is from boy. He put it in, it's hard to see what he put here. 
Charlie Harper in Carmel, Indiana. Charlie, if you send an email to someone, you should have the text in black and the background in white, not the background in black and then the text in black. So I can't read your name. But maybe he has a good question. Here's Charlie's question. Oh, my God. My father grew up in a small town, Indiana. The Boswell Armory was his wrestling spot. He used to talk about the CB radio boom of the 70s. <laughs> my question is, wrestlers were on the road almost as much as truck drivers. Did wrestlers <laughs> use CB radios or anything like that during all those hours on the road? Did you have a CB radio and a handle at the time? Oh, my God. Yeah, every wrestler from what was it, 19... 75 or 6, I guess, in through the early 80s had a CB radio, at least in the Tennessee territory. I assume any of the big driving territories they did because that was uh it, the the craze was brought on by the the uh gas prices and uh, gas prices. Gas crisis. Gasoline crisis. What? There are listeners who have no idea what a CB radio is. Citizens band radio. It's it, oh god damn now how do you explain things when was the last time it was in a who car are so young they're yeah. too stupid to know anything <laughs> a citizens band radio is a radio that 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 broadcasts on bands that are used by average citizens that don't need to be monitored by the FCC it's like a ham radio type thing but it's in your car and a CB radio, the truck drivers used it because of the gas crisis and the the prices of gas in the 70s. They had lowered the speed limit to 55 miles an hour on the interstate everywhere. Everywhere. And no truck drivers nor no wrestlers were going to drive 55 miles an hour on the interstate. And so they'd use the CB radio because if you saw a cop sitting there waiting, shooting with a radar gun, whatever, you'd get on the radio. Hey, breaker one nine. Breaker, breaker one nine. <laughs> breaker one nine. Good buddies. You got a smoky bear at mile marker 42 with his eyes open and that kind of shit, right? The fuzz. The fuzz. And, and then the fuzz buster, a radar detector. That was another thing that went along, set on your dash, went along with the CB radio. So you talk to the truck drivers and the other drivers, see where the cops were. And if they shot you with the radar, the fuzz buster would go off. <clears throat> I had a fuzz buster one time in Louisiana, come up over a hill and thing went, I said, shit, I hit the brakes, but it was too late. He had me, busted me, pulls me over. I said, how fast was I going, sir? He said, you were doing 59 and a 55. And I said, well, that's four miles an hour. You can't let me slide on four miles an hour. He said, well, normally I would, but I see you got a fuzz buster there, and we consider that an unfair advantage. I said, you got $25,000 worth of radar. I consider <laughs> that an unfair advantage. <laughs> he gave me the ticket anyway. So the CB radio, yes, all the guys had them. And like I said, they talked to the truck drivers and everything. They talked to each other and, the, and everybody had, I never had a CB in my car. That was kind of going away by the time I got into business. But Mama Cornette got one because she didn't want to get no tickets. And we would listen every once in a while. She would talk and say something. Cause Did she have a handle? And also. Did she have a handle? What was it? Oh, my God. 
You know, I think it was Folger. I think it was because that's what my dad used to call my mom. He called her Folger. And nobody understands that now. But in the 50s and 60s, there was a TV commercial for Folger's Coffee. It's Mountain Grown. And he called her Folger because she was Mountain Grown. Um, but Teeny had one, and, they, and they'd talk back and forth. But And every once in a while, I'd get on there and, and rattle some truck drivers, you know, just mess with them. But the best CB radio story with any of the wrestlers that I've ever heard was Stan Lane and Steve Kern with old Silo Sam, little John Harris. I've told you this one, hadn't I? I don't recall. Okay. So, folks, the fabulous ones were Stan Lane and Steve Kern. They're in the Memphis Territory. This is after they had left the first time, and I think they came back for the last run. So it's 84, 85. Probably 85, if I had to guess, based on Silo Sam. <clears throat> right. Well, 85, that's right, because he, he went to Tennessee right after he fucked up our match at Texas Stadium. Anyway, so Stan and Steve and, and Kern especially is, you know, he's always got the CBs and all that stuff and everything. And they're driving down the interstate on the way to Louisville or somewhere, and they see old little John Harris, Silo Sam. He's seven feet, six inches tall, and he's got that giant gut and that big hairy beard. And he's, because he came to the territory with no car, he's riding around. Do you remember a wrestler named Tommy Wright? Yes. Okay. Well, Tommy Wright has got a nice full-size car that old Silo Sam will sit in, uh, fit in, right? So he's driving Silo Sam around to the, to the matches in the territory. So Lane and Kern on the interstate come up behind Tommy Wright driving silo sam and the windows down it's nice weather and silo sam's arm is hanging out the door almost dragging the concrete his arms are so long right and stan says we got to do something about this so as they get up <laughs> where they're <laughs> they're coming up behind an 18 wheeler on the interstate and stan gets on a cb says breaker one nine for that consolidated freightways truck or whatever, right? Well, you got him. Yeah, I just want you to know that uh, you need to get the fuck out of my way. How's that? <laughs> you need to get the fuck out of my way, pal, with that piece of shit you're driving. If you'll look in your rearview mirror, <laughs> I'm right behind you. I need to get by you. I'm the biggest man that you've ever seen. <laughs> my, my arm is so long, it's nearly dragging the ground right now. I'm seven and a half feet tall, and if you don't pull that piece of shit out of the way so I can go around you, I'm going to just pull you over and kick the shit out of you. <laughs> Now, meanwhile, Kern's driving, <laughs> and Kern is up on Tommy Wright's tail enough to where, and he doesn't know that it's Kern and Lane. He just says somebody's on his ass, so he starts to pass that truck to pick it up a little bit and go around. And as he starts to pass the truck, just out of nowhere, according to what Tommy Wright's thinking, that fucking truck veers into the left lane and runs Tommy Wright and Silo Sam into the goddamn median. <laughs> 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 and, and as as Stan and 
as Steve go by, they reach out the window and wave at old Silo Sam, who's now mired down in the fucking mud in the goddamn median of the interstate and nearly killed by a truck driver. And no, no way to tell why he was so mad. Yeah, why'd you pull that piece of shit? Oh, I'm about the biggest man you've ever seen. If you look <laughs> in your rearview mirror right now, you'll see how big I am, motherfucker. <sighs> And then it kept you <laughs> occupied on the road. I remember the promo videos they aired in Memphis to build up Big John Harris, Silo Sam coming in. It was just him in the back of a pickup truck being driven yes. around. <laughs> well, you know why they, they shot that footage? Because if Eddie Marlin ran all the spot shows. If he's running Selmer, Tennessee, or Covington, Tennessee, or Osceola, Arkansas, or whatever, he'd go down early that morning with a bale of hay in the back of a pickup truck and silo Sam in full straw hat and fucking farmer gimmick, all seven and a half feet tall and 400 pounds of him sitting on that bale of hay with a sign leaned up says, come see the giant wrestling tonight, school gym. And they just drive around fucking town. That was the only way that you could really draw money with him. Cause once people saw him do something, they didn't want to see him again, but just sitting there shit. I'll pay $3 to see that. All right, Jim. Well, let's see how much more you'd pay $3 to see. But I have to wonder if when Silo Sam was driven off the side of the road, (laughs) if he was bothered much or perhaps he was listening to a good tune on his Raycon earbuds. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, he should have been listening to the CB radio and maybe he would have known what was going on. But folks, if you've been listening to things, whether it be podcasts or audio books or music or television or whatever and they haven't been sounding as good as they should that's because you're not using the raycon wireless earbuds the everyday earbuds that look and feel and sound better than ever and we say that every time how can it possibly be true that's because they keep improving these things they came up with the optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit and we we know they won't fall out We've talked about numerous people falling from skyscrapers and landing and splattering themselves all over the concrete, turning into jelly with grease running everywhere. But right in what's left of their ears, those earbuds are still stuck in there. The Raycons give you eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life, and they start at half the price of other premium audio brands. Makes you wonder exactly how these other premium audio brands can reconcile their consciences with themselves for screwing people, doubling the price of their shit. Raycon doesn't do that because they've got over 50,000 five-star reviews. Now, let's just go down this list. What have they got? What have the Raycon earbuds got that you've got to have? Well, three, three customizable sound profiles. They've also got earbud tap functions. You can tap these things. They do all kinds of shit. You tap one of them, it starts jumping up and down like a daggum jumping bean. No, it does you, not. That's not what happens when you tap you, the you earbuds. You tap the other one, they start vibrating. No, it doesn't. As, None of this is going to happen with the things that you're going to be putting in your ears. No. Well, there's noise isolation. They've got that. See, They've you put that. these in your ears and you ain't going to hear anything. You don't even need to turn these on. If you just stick them in your ears, if you don't want to listen to your wife or your nagging spouse or whatever the case, just put these in. Don't even turn them on, but you won't be able to hear whoever's bothering you. 
And they've got an awareness mode. If you put the Raycon wireless earbuds, the everyday earbuds, in your ears and then set them for awareness mode, you will suddenly and instantly be aware of everything going on in the world and your place in it. And you will be able to answer the question, what is the meaning of life? Because you will suddenly activate your awareness. You've never been so aware. You'll be the smartest motherfucker on your block as long as you're wearing these earbuds and set to awareness mode. But if you tap them again and go back to noise isolation, then not only will you not be able to hear anything, but you'll be as dumb as a box of fucking rocks. You will no longer be aware. Right now, unless you're going to argue with me about I'm, that, I'm going to let you keep going. You can own this one. Okay. Well, you can go to buyraycon.com right now, today, instantly, this minute, second even, and use the code JCE15 to get 15% off your Raycon order. That's buyraycon, B-U-I-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com, and the code is JCE15 for 15% off however many buds you want to get. Get some buds for you. Get some buds for your friends. Even get some buds for an enemy. You know, if you really don't like a motherfucker and you send him a pair of these and say, put these in, turn them up loud, activate the noise isolation mode, and they're sitting there in their living room, they're listening to this music, they don't know what's going on around them, pay somebody with an 18-wheeler to drive through their living room. They'll never hear it coming. Raycon wireless earbuds by Raycon.com. Use the code JCE15 for 15% off. They'll never hear it coming. You will hear anything coming that's coming to hurt you, even with the Raycon earbuds in your ear, but you'll be enjoying all the beautiful sounds of anything you hear with the Raycon earbuds. Please support them despite everything you've just heard. Let's move on with the show here, Jim. You know, it's an ominous sound, the sound of an oncoming train. Oh, yeah? all right well just like that i'm sorry to stop you mr michael winslow but let's move on here with the show jim our train, next question train take me on down from this this next foot train train this next question was sent to cordy drive through at gmail.com from jt i'm just curious and i have too much time on my hands what was high school like for you, Jim? Were you the high school jock? Did you get A's and B's? Were you the prom king? What stories from high school can you tell us? Absolutely none, because those records were sealed when I turned 18. And I've been assured, I might have Stephen P. New look into it again, but I've been assured that that would not be opened back up again because of the double, je double jeopardy laws. However, no, I was not a jock. Uh, I was not the prom king. I was a soft-spoken, meek and mild young man till I got around the wrestling business, and that brought things out in me. Um, really? So, uh, yes, I, I, I was not the life of the party in big groups. When I was a little, a little teeny-weeny little tot in a small group or with an individual friend, I could be quite entertaining, but I, I didn't try to make myself the center of attention. All that came about as a result of being around the wildest personalities in the history of the fucking civilized planet for a long period of time. Um, How much of your high school life was 
comprised of wrestling stuff? Like, would you, were you already doing stuff with the magazines? Would you bring stuff to school and work on it at school? Oh, no. Well, what do you, what could you work on back in those days? I was taking pictures. What is I going to okay. take pictures That's of a true. kid in the next desk and send it to Gong Magazine? What if you're writing articles or anything? No, I did all that. All right. Um, but no, um, and I didn't bring shit because again, I didn't bring stuff. Say, look, that's a that's the best way to get people to hate you in school is to bring stuff that you're doing that nobody else is doing. And say, hey, look at me, what I'm doing. Don't you just hate assholes like that? I didn't mean like that. Like, for instance, what I did in high school is I was trading tapes and they're already selling tapes from you know 14 on. So I would come in in the morning and I commandeered the photo lab dubbing system because they were illegally <laughs> dubbing tapes down there. That's how everyone in fucking Long Beach got Forrest Gump. They were illegally dubbing tapes down there. So I would dub my first four hour tape down there and then I would go up to the library and they would let me take over the library VCRs and I would dub another tape there. By the time I left school, counting the tapes I had started before I left the house at home, I had at least six tapes done by the end of the day. I treated school the way it should have been treated, as a business. This is as where a I, business. This is where I can continue my business functions while all these idiots who became teachers here are going to try to tell me how to have a life like theirs. And that's all right. I'll be all right. Well, there was only one problem with that where I was concerned. No VCRs. When I was in school, there was no VCRs. So you got to, as, as a matter of fact, I still remember when I was in the first grade, my father was on... Uh, one of the local morning talk shows that was on, I guess it was wave TV. Uh, they had the morning show at then. it was called the morning show. He was a guest. He was a guest. And so they brought the TV in the, in the classroom. They're going to watch <laughs> my dad on TV. Right. And, and you know, boy, this was before, well, it wasn't before videotape, but I guarantee you this live local broadcast was never videotaped. I wish I had that now, obviously. But this was back still in the days when they wheeled in the goddamn television on a, a wheeled cart with rabbit ears in school to watch TV. And then if you watched a, a movie when I was in school, yeah, you watched one of those educational films, they pulled the goddamn projector, the screen down over the blackboard and wheeled a projector in and had to thread the spool of film and show it on the projector. So that was the extent of audiovisual activity when I was a kid. But as far as grades, I know this will be a shock to you, Brian. But I was the best student at stuff that I could figure out for myself. And if it required me being taught something, and especially if it was something I was not interested in, then I didn't do as well. Henceforth and forthwith, my worst subjects were math and some sciences because I couldn't fucking figure that out on my own. And my best subjects were anything to do with English, language, spelling, writing, and or history and those type of things because I was already ahead of all of my classes, no matter what grade I was in, so I could coast on those because I'd already read much more advanced books on those particular things than was being given to that particular year's class. So they thought I was a genius when it was anything involving the written word. Uh, but if I had to total anything up, uh, then they thought I was a goddamn moron. 
I used to have brawls with English teachers. They were the stupidest people. It was like you had to accept <laughs> their version of what a book or a story should be, even if it defies logic. I got into a big incident once. Not a big incident, but I wouldn't let it go. And I was proven right, at least according to the staff there. <laughs> story of an hour. It's a story about... An hour? A woman who hears that her husband has died, and all of a sudden she goes through a flood of happy emotions, that she's free of this marriage that was loveless, that she didn't want to be in. None of that's in contention. I had an issue with the teacher, because the teacher argued that in the story, the woman comes down the stairs, and the door opens, and the husband walks in, and the woman has a heart attack and dies. Because of the shock, the husband isn't dead, he's alive. My argument, which was backed up by the fucking department, is no, you're wrong, you don't understand how words work. She died of happiness coming down the stairs the moment before he walked in. <laughs> which changes the whole story. And she wouldn't let it go, and I wouldn't let it go, and uh, I, I won. I won, because I was right. But this was about Jim in high school. I, I don't know why I went down this road. English teachers, that's why. Yes. My best subject. I had to read Bless the Beast and Children. Ugh. They got mad, according to what I wasn't privy to this conversation, but according to what my mother said in later years, my first grade teacher was somewhat upset at my parents because they had taught me to read already in a manner other in which that she taught most of her kids to read. What do you mean? What and do you mean in a different manner? Well, I don't know because I was fucking five or six or whatever. But they said, well, we do things like this. They said, well, he can already read, so just pick up and take it from there. But I was already... Um, How old were you when you started reading? Three, right? Wow, I wow. guess. What? Um, well, my dad would... I still have all of I still have all of his school books from the 1920s, the encyclopedias and all the shit that he had when he was a kid in school. Um, they're downstairs in the uh, in the shelves where they've been for the past 70 years or whatever. But um, he would have me sit on his lap and point to a paragraph in one of his books and have me read it out loud to him. So by the time I started school, I was already reading functionally ahead of that level i guess when i was in what was it was it fifth grade they did that speed did you ever do the speed reading thing i don't know do they still do that what is school? it exactly well they come in and they give you a test where they and the way it was done then because again there was no internet or whatever but there would be a screen on the blackboard and they would put text that you were supposed to read like from a, a book or whatever on this screen, but a light would move across it or up and down or however the was. It's been 50 years, folks. But the light would determine how fast you had to read as the words were illuminated or whatever. And then they would you would read it, and then they would ask you a couple of questions about it to see what your retention was. Like you you read X words per minute with a something percent, you know, recognition factor where you could remember afterwards what you read. And I get maybe this might, I guess this was the third grade. What if I was in the third grade, they said I was reading at the seventh or eighth grade level at that point. Um, 700 and something words a minute. That was apparently fast for that class at that time. I don't know what any of this means now today, or even if they still do it, but I've always been a good reader. 
And then, and then, and then, but see, when something like that would come up, then the other kids that would, that would make fun of you or whatever, cause you were doing shit better than they were. So they had to make fun of you. And then I still had the, the temper that I inherited from my mother's side of the family. So that occasionally caused issues. So then I, I just started dumbing down some of my test results then so that I wouldn't cause controversy because it was easier than throwing desks at the other children. You get in trouble for that. All right. You certainly do get in trouble for that. We'll tell you about Stephen P. New a little bit later for any parents of children had a desk thrown at them by Jim Cordette. But let's get a few Vince McMahon-related questions here on the show, Jim. This one sent to cornydrivethru at gmail.com from Andrew in Vancouver. Would Jim ever have Vince McMahon over for dinner? If so, what would Jim <laughs> serve, Vince? And do you think he would make Jim sign an NDA? Uh, no, that's, I've never, never observed Vince asking anybody to sign an NDA when I worked alongside him. And what would I say? Yes, I'd ask Vince over for dinner if we were in the same town, in the same place and working together and et cetera, et cetera. And I felt like he had time to come. Um, I guess now that he's retired, he has more time than he used to, but I'm trying to think of everything I've ever seen Vince McMahon eat. Every day that we wrote at his house and we went down to the little store and he'd buy us lunch, they had like a deli with all kinds of sandwiches. They would make you, you know, cheese steaks. They'd make you chicken fingers. They'd make a variety of things. He would get a plain turkey sandwich on, I think, on white bread with light mustard. No mayonnaise, only mustard because there's fat in it, but not a lot of that. And that's what he would eat, a turkey sandwich with a little mustard for lunch. Every time I've seen him at a nice restaurant, it would be a steak. and. Uh, and then at catering in the buildings, he would on purpose eat that bland, tasteless grilled chicken and the dry, stuck-together fucking pasta. That's how I knew it. Chicken and dry pasta and fucking salad must be apparently what bodybuilders eat because that's all that we ever had at catering in the 90s in the WWF. Now... I went down for the Hall of Fame, and it's like walking into Morton Steakhouse. They had more condiments than a goddamn convenience store. I ate three meals while I was there that day. They had salmon that was delicious. They had varieties of meats, and everything was seasoned. It was food you would actually order on purpose. But in the 90s, it was what Vince would eat and what he would want his bodybuilders to eat, which was bland, unseasoned grilled chicken, a big bowl of pasta. If you stuck a fork in it and brought the fork out, the whole ball of pasta would come out together because there was no sauce on it. A little fucking Parmesan cheese on the side and a big bowl of salad. That's what we had for catering. So that's why I was always sending fucking Harvey Whippleman or somebody out for Something, steak and shake, chicken wings, wherever the fuck we might be, surprise me. Give me some fucking food. So that's Vince. He he has said this before. 
He doesn't eat for enjoyment. It's fuel to him. It keeps the body going. That's the reason he eats. So it's either going to be a turkey sandwich, some dry, bland, unfattening, ungreasy fucking catering, or a goddamn steak. Gotta wonder how different Vince would be if he actually had some fat on him. You know, his father was a little jowly. And, and Vince was getting that, that way, too, before he got loaded to the gills on steroids in the late 90s. That's true. He was starting to get a little jowly. And then but but I don't know where that comes from, that he feels the need at this point still at this stage of his life to lift 700 pounds in some fashion. Let's just don't say we did. He's got nothing else. What's he going to do? Go watch Netflix? He could lift 200 pounds. He doesn't have to lift 700. Jim, our next question sent to CornyDriveThru at gmail.com from Brian in Little Rock, Arkansas. I read online in a random article that you once had to wear a bulletproof vest while performing in Little Rock, Arkansas. <laughs> Can you tell us about this story? I love the show. Keep up the good work. Thank you for making me laugh on a daily basis. Well, I didn't just wear it in Little Rock, but that's where I got it. Um... It was Mid-South Wrestling, 1984, me and the Midnight Express. The I've, I've mentioned this before, that Little Rock was a rowdy crowd at the Barton Coliseum, and it was one of the regular towns, but we had excellent police protection there. The same cops worked the matches every every time, and they knew what was going on, and they took real good care of the heels. And that's the place where the, the guy had called in wanting to get a front row seat because he was going to shoot Ted DiBiase. And they sent the cops there that night. I've told that story. And then DiBiase comes back alive and we're the main event. I go out and get in a cage and get jacked up 30 feet over the ring. I'm like, well, what a target I am. There's a guy there with a gun somewhere. But the cops in Little Rock was led by this. He had to be six feet three or four, but he was 400 pounds. I've never seen a police uniform this size. I don't know where they got the gun belt. He was massive, and he was assigned to me. So the eight or ten of the cops would get in a circle around all of us to walk us to and from the ring, but this cop would grab me in like a bear hug, and he would back to the ring or back to the back if it was real hot and real tight to where he's got his arms around me, and he's looking over my shoulder behind me so he can see anybody coming up on me. And he was so big, nobody could get around him to get to my front. So he would back me to the ring, right? Well, one week, it, it was probably toward the summertime, one of the cops comes up to me and says, you know, they just gave us new equipment on the force, and we have new bulletproof vests. So I brought my old one for you. And I'm kind of like, huh? He said, Honestly, you might need this more than I do. I said, okay. So he gave it to me. And he said, now, here's the thing. He said, and, and obviously, if anybody's ever seen a police issue bulletproof vest, it is, it, you stick your head in it. It's like a thing, like, like one of those parking attendant orange jackets or vests or whatever you stick your head in it and it goes down across your front across your back and then there's velcro straps that bring it together on the sides it's like a life preserver except it's not big and bulbous like that it's just filled with whatever that 
material is. And it's pretty heavy. It weighs about, I guess, 10 or 15 pounds or whatever, as I recall. Anyway, he said, you probably need this worse than I do, which coming from a city police officer in Little Rock, Arkansas, didn't make me feel good. But he was careful to tell me, he said, now, it'll not only it'll stop bullets, except obviously not if you get shot in the head, but bullets to the body, and it'll stop knives, but it won't stop ice picks because it's some kind of metal weave in there, and the pick, I guess, is is so small it'll go in between whatever. I don't know. I said, well, that's good to know. So I'm still fucked if somebody ice picks me, but I should be okay with And that's the thing. That's why I wore it, because knives were more of a concern than guns, to be honest. I didn't... I wasn't ruling out the possibility that somebody would take a shot at us because it had happened before in wrestling and we had a lot of heat, but the chances were much, much higher that I would come in contact with a knife in the Louisiana Territory than actually get shot at because that had happened so many more times. Tony Zane got stabbed in New Orleans one time. He was a job guy, but he was in a pull-apart. And the fan hit the ring and tried to stab the heel and stab poor old Tony Zane. Never had a lick of heat with anybody. So at that point, I would wear it sometimes in Little Rock, but I would always wear it in Tulsa. And I would occasionally put it on in Lake Charles and I think once in Biloxi, Mississippi. The towns that were bad and that the cops either sometimes were outmanned or not particularly motivated. And that's where I would just in case, and and that's what I did with that. So yes, that's but so it was it was from Little Rock, but I wore it in a few different places. And I didn't want to see all the boys see me putting a bulletproof vest on because they're they're going out there in their fucking spandex, right, with these maniacs. So I'd go in the bathroom and get in the stall, and I'd put it on, put my suit jacket back on, and come back out. Nobody ever knew except Bobby and Dennis. Well, perhaps one of these fans would. Come down there and try to cut you and get tackled and have the crap kicked out of them by security. And although they had bad intentions, they may want to sue. Well, you know, you didn't have to make that transition because, goddammit, we got sued so many times down there. And as a matter <laughs> of fact, we went back to Louisiana to Baton Rouge in 1988 for WCW and got served a reprise of a suit that didn't go anywhere in 1984. That's how fucking bad it was but i'll tell you what none of those people suing us were uh, uh able because of the era in which it was he was only like six years old at that time to retain the services of the man who has now become not only the consigliere of the cult of cornet but one of the most famous barristers in all of pro wrestling history i'm talking about this man Stephen P. News. If you need to an outlaw show or two, those are the rest. Now, I'll tell you exactly how the Stephen P. New could be of ultimate service to you. I know this has happened to everybody. I know, Brian, it's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you and many of the listeners out there. Let's say that a city police officer comes up and gives you his 
bulletproof vest because he says that you need it more than he does. Now, that's happened to all of us at one time or another. And let's say, for example, that the bulletproof vest does work for bullets and knives, as we've mentioned. But let's also say that some weasel sneaks an ice pick in there and gets in between that metal weave and perpetrates your innards with the ice pick. Well, then you'd have no choice left but to sue the manufacturers of that defective bulletproof vest because they didn't cover all of their bases. And that's where you would call the man, the myth, the legend, Stephen P. New at newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. I I got an email right here. And it's from Eduardo. And Eduardo says, Hello, Corny and Brian Last. I wanted to thank you for the recommendation to Stephen P. New. I got let go from my job for having asthma. Can you imagine that? Wrongful termination. I got let go from my job for having asthma. And I just got in contact with the new law office as we speak. They're going to pass the information on. And I appreciate your recommendation. If you And as a matter of fact, Eduardo goes on to say, funny enough, all I said was I listened to a wrestling podcast and the lady over the phone said, Jim Cornette. And I said, yes. (laughs) So see there, you don't have to be the victim of a defective bulletproof vest. You don't have to be poisoned by one of these greedy corporations. You don't have to be an inmate at one of the jails in West Virginia where people are being treated like subhumans without the basic comforts of home. You don't have to be any of these flashy cases that we talk about. You just got to be somebody that's been screwed around and fucked over by some person that needs to pay for it. And that's where Stephen P. New comes in. So if you fit that description, ladies and gentlemen, whether you're an opioid-addicted infant, actually, if you are an opioid-addicted infant, Get your parents' permission before calling newlawoffice.com at 888-692-8084. But what are you asking your parents for? It's their fault that you were born addicted to opioids. So instead, just pick up the phone, even if you're a baby, an infant, in swaddling clothes, and just go goo-goo-ga-ga to the operator, and they will connect you to newlawoffice.com where you can sue somebody too. But if somebody's jacked you around, whether you're man, woman, child, old, young, skinny, fat, animal, vegetable, or mineral, Stephen P. New can get you paid and get you even for your situation. That's why we say get even with Stephen. We certainly do. Get even with Stephen, newlawoffice.com. But Jim, let's get a few more questions before we get out of here. This next one, sent to corny drive through at gmail.com. From Julian in London, we've all heard about Vince McMahon's crazy work schedule. I have a simple question. Was it necessary? Was this the only way to run such a huge company? Or just someone who refused to delegate, micromanaged everything, and kept changing his mind constantly? Can the WWE thrive under more normal working conditions? Or will we see things start to slip? If Triple H is unwilling to adopt the same brutal schedule, what are your thoughts? Well, part of column A and part of column B, nobody needed to work as hard or as long or as much or as minutely as Vince McMahon did. But the 
end result of that was he's been the most successful guy in the business that he's in for the past 40 fucking years. So can, and the thing is, he didn't micromanaging is him. If he was micromanaging, he would have gone to the goddamn TV studio and said, I don't like the graphics here. Here's the way I want the graphics to look and write them out. Or he would have come to where, Tom Pritchard was training guys in the the studio in the warehouse and go, no, here's the way you take an arm drag. Vince was aware of everything going on. Vince was in charge of who got to do what. Vince was the ultimate say in who was hired and who was fired for any job, wrestling or otherwise, in that entire company. Ultimately, if if, if it was a low-level person, Vince was in charge of the guy that hired and fired them. But Vince had control of everything. Vince was aware of everything going on, and Vince knew who was in charge and or responsible of everything. In that way, he micromanaged. But he also, and we, you know, we've talked about that. I said he put Jake on the creative team. He was always willing to let guys in the business have a chance to fucking fall on their ass. And many of them did, but with other hires or other people in charge of the business office, um, yes, he kept guys that that were there with him from the start. Ed Cohen was a brilliant arena booker and did the schedule for years and negotiated with all the buildings, but he had people that he had brought on that learned from him. And so everybody that Vince hired, they brought in people that that were the best at what they could that that what they did or could be the best at what they did or were given the chance to be the best or to be very good so that level of involvement is what has set Vince apart from everything else yes he changed his mind all the time he did that in the 90s but it it's gotten more egregious and more of a thing that people talk about 25 years later or whatever, because back then when Vince was changing the TV constantly, it'd be me and Bruce Pritchard or, or Bruce and Pat or me and shit stain or whatever point in time we were the ones that were going, Jesus Christ, make up your fucking mind. But nobody else even knew because that was the creative team. And then you'd get to the production meeting and then we'd go through the format. And then in front of the rest of the, production people he'd change some things or he'd take something out or we'd have something set in a production meeting and then he'd go talk to the talent involved and they wanted to do something else in their segment so he'd change it around there were changes but it wasn't like he had a staff of 30 writers and still he'd get to the production meeting or the day of the show and just tear the whole thing up and start from scratch as we've heard of him doing you know in years recently and that, not only is that screwing up everybody in the immediate vicinity, but now there's so many more people working on the shows than there were back then that he's changed, that he was changing his mind more often and more frequently and about more things. And it was throwing hundreds of people into turmoil. Again, when I was there at the Hall of Fame, I said, how many motherfuckers is on this crew? And they they had as many people on the teardown crew after the show was over to tear the stuff down 
and set up for the next day than used to do a full-fledged television taping in the WWE. So it's it's exponentially got bigger. Meanwhile, Vince exponentially got more people writing the product, which meant apparently that exponentially he had more to disagree with and, you know, start changing his mind more often. But uh, still, the, the whole question was, can anybody else work like Vince did and should Triple H and is it necessary? And the answer is nobody should micromanage and go back and forth and change their mind incessantly. But with Vince, his micromanaging was making sure that really good people or the best people he could find or people that he thought could carry the ball were in every position and letting them know what he wanted to happen. And then if it if what he wanted to happen didn't happen, it was their fault. He knew who to blame and somebody else would be in that spot. And Triple H is going to have to do the same goddamn thing. And it looks like he is. He's bringing back his people. He's changing the announcers now. He's changed the NXT flavor. He's brought back some of the guys that he liked that they had let go after his heart issues. So it's not like he's going to be in there cooking every dish the restaurant serves, but he's going to know how much the fucking ingredients cost what the fucking recipes are and who's actually making the fucking stew. And that's what you have to do. And Tony may know all those things, but he hadn't picked the right people to be in charge of them, which is the difference in the way the WWE's run and the difference in the way AEW's run. What's the problem with telling yourself that you know enough just based on reading The Observer for years? In that case, I... If you know... Everything there is to know about wrestling, just because you've read the Wrestling Observer for years, then I'll have you know that I can now reveal that I'm the best fuck in the history of fucking. What? Because nobody's read more porn than me. You've read more porn? You're reading porn. Well, yeah. You can't just look at the pictures. You have to have a story. You read the stories? Sure. For the record, I haven't picked up a porno magazine since I was a teenager in Penn Station in the mid-90s, but I don't remember reading the stories. Wait a minute. What were you doing in Penn Station as a teenager? I can tell you what I was doing. Usually coming back from ECW in Philadelphia, Georgie and Macropolis would drop me off at Penn Station, and I'd have to go down there, and if you'd missed a 250 train or sometimes a 310 train, you'd have to wait around till 5.30 in the morning. It was brutal. So what do you do? You go to the newsstand. You hope you can get some pizza. And you start looking through all the porno mags until your other friends from high school show up from whatever they're doing in the city. <sighs> city life. Boy, you what, what, ki- what kind of juvenile delinquent were you? You were taught to read And, there, and there, there you were at the Port Authority. No. Standing on the side of the street. Somebody pulls up. Hey, kid. You know anybody around here? Never the Port Authority. Penn y'all, Station. Are y'all, y'all alone? <laughs> New in town? You want to make some money? All right, Joe Buck. You've watched too much Midnight Cowboy over here. (laughs) Candid. Hey, hey, we're walking here. We're walking here. Well, Jim, what may be our last question, sent to CourtneyDriveThru at gmail.com, sent from Matthew the Leper in Bolton, (laughs) UK. Are you sure he's not a leaper? It says leper, and then it says, I should get this trademark before Jericho does. (laughs) Here's his question. (laughs) 
In the wake of the AEW media scrum fallout, I've seen comments from veterans suggesting that top stars having separate locker rooms can be a real problem and cause resentment. What's your view on this? I know that in previous generations, locker rooms were either single setups or designed for heels and babyfaces, but what's your experience of this in the modern era? Uh, Yeah, I mean, when it... Again... When it's taken too far, it's a problem. And I'll I'll illustrate. Again, in the territory days or in wrestling down through years and years and years, there was either one locker room or two locker rooms. Depending on the the building and the setup and the way you went to the ring, there would either be the babyface locker room and the heel locker room, so that way the fans did not see you coming out of the same door, the same room, the same entryway. Or if it was a building where you had separate entrances that you could come out, but back in the back away from the public, you know, uh, consciousness, you could get in the same locker rooms. The Memphis Mid-South Coliseum was like that. That's actually Memphis and Louisville and Evansville were like that. Really in, in Tennessee, the only place besides spot shows you couldn't, you know, get to the other locker room was in Nashville. But in those cases, the referees would carry the finish back and forth. But anyway, so even the big stars in those days, there was no private locker room. You know, Dusty had an office area in most of the buildings because he was the booker. And I did the same thing in Smoky Mountain when I was a an on-air performing talent and the booker also. I generally had a room that I would commandeer, I called it the finish room, where the referees would bring the guys in either match by match or segment by segment, and you would go over, you know, what was going on on the show with them. And I always found it easier, instead of me trying to wander around and, you know, find everybody individually, have the referees bring them to me, they know where to come, that's the command center. But that's the only reason I had a separate locker room it's gone crazy in modern times with now not only the indie guys who think when when they suddenly end up in a big building you know they're stars and they should have private locker rooms and and the promoters give them private locker rooms or they demand them or whatever and that does breed discontent with the average guy on the card because all of a sudden not only is this guy in the main events, not only is he making more money than me, but now he's too good to dress with the boys. He's got to be in there. Like it's not, I guess people have seen the WWE TV show so long. Well, let's go to Roman Reigns' locker room, the bloodline, and there's a sign on the door. That's all bullshit. Or at least it used to be. That was never the case. Now maybe it is. I don't know. But that does breed discontent or malcontent or uncontent. If all the guys are in the, in the locker room and, but this guy needs a private room and this guy feels like he's too good to be one of the boys and dress with us and everything. Undertaker never did that. Right. A guy like Bret Hart doesn't, you know, so did Sean, Oh, well, if I can, I know that sometimes he was in the locker room and that's most, <laughs> he was one of the guys at that point in time when he was in the regular guy's locker room, they didn't really want him to be. 
But no, he had at WrestleMania the when he came and dropped the belt to Austin with Tyson as referee, they had a separate room for him so he could put his security outside and be in there. And he was late getting to the building and it teased he wasn't going to show up and blah, blah, blah. I mean, sometimes they brought a star football player in or some special celebrity guest. Yes, give them their own locker room because you don't really want them in the locker room with the boys because they'll hear shit they shouldn't hear being talked about. Or at least that's the way it was in the old days. Now they hear shit they shouldn't be hearing talked about on fucking internet and major television. But it, but that's, I mean, you know, a lot of times guys, the guys that deserve to have their own locker room because they're standing in the business or their experience level or whatever, they don't want one. They want to dress with the boys. So, you know, yes, when there's, if if you're also the booker, or there's being business being done, then you want your own room because that serves another purpose. But just to give a guy a private locker room and he's one of the boys, that does breed discontent. In this era where wrestlers are so different than they used to be, if you have wrestlers who are not sociable or don't want to interact with everyone because you have a weird makeup in your locker room of different types of people, is it beneficial? I mean, CM Punk had his own locker room, and it may have been beneficial. He didn't mix with a lot of these guys. He mixed with who he wanted to mix with. That may have been the best way to use CM Punk in AEW, not force him to be around people that were going to cause him to eventually want to <laughs> do something about it. I mean, do you see also examples where having your own well, locker room is a beneficial also, thing? Also, I can look at it the other way. I can look at it like CM Punk probably wanted his own locker room so he could bring the people that he enjoyed being around in and leave the stick in the muds over. Because remember, I've told you the last few times I've been in these modern locker rooms. They're all sitting there looking at their fucking phones or they're texting each other while they're in the same fucking building. So when one guy it. it in an MLW tape, I said, oh, have you seen so-and-so? Because I'm looking for him because I've got their match to produce. Yeah, he just texted me. I said, where the fuck is he? Oh, he's upstairs by the ring. I said, I thought you meant he texted you because he was down the goddamn road, broke down or something. He's actually texting somebody in the same fucking building. That's the thing is that now these guys, they just sit there. They might talk. They'll talk about their match for three hours. And there go seven minutes, but there's no storytelling. There's no, you know, bullshit and there's no ribbing. There's no anything in the locker room anymore. It's just guys sitting there looking at their phones or engaging in idle chat. Nobody's trying to top a story. Nobody's trying to pull a fucking rib. Nobody's trying to fucking glue your goddamn shoes to the ceiling. You know, you want to talk about how different the locker room is. We never talked about this on the air. Did you ever hear the story way back, a few years ago, it must have been at this point, about a AEW bodies list that the boys did for fun in the locker room where they would compare their physiques and rank who's in the best physique this week. And no surprise to anyone, Billy Gunn won like every single <laughs> fucking week. And I, then I haven't heard of this, but I, I can believe it. The story goes that a certain wrestler who seems to be at the center of a lot of drama <laughs> may have complained that it's body shaming having this list comparing <laughs> the physiques of professional wrestlers in the locker room posted 
Not that there was a list of who's a flabby ass or anything, but just talking about who's in the best shape was body shaming. Oh, my God. Well, then I guess that they really wouldn't have lasted in the territories where one of the more fun things to do was talk about the other guy's minuscule, microscopic fucking dick. There's what no, the fuck? There's no dick shaming. list. If there was a dick list, it would have been a different thing. Body shaming. Boy, I tell you what, when Adrian Street was around, you know, Adrian is a hell of an artist. I mean, uh, uh, he can draw and he's very good, like Bret Hart. And they both would do pictures on like blackboards or, you know, uh, fucking dry race boards if they happen to be in the locker room or if we're in a high school gym. Adrian used to do tremendous chalk work on these <laughs> school blackboards, but it would invariably, I remember one of them he did. The sheep herders, Jonathan Boyd and Luke Williams. And he was always, Luke was the nicer between the two of him and Johnny Boyd. And then Butch, of course, is a sweetheart. But Adrian would always make sure that a picture of the sheep herders, the flagpole that Luke was carrying with the New Zealand flag was Luke's giant, throbbing, four foot long, veiny fucking dick. And he would never erase them. He'd leave them in the goddamn. <laughs> so then they'd come into school on Monday morning and there'd be a, a sheep herder with a giant four foot veiny throbbing cock with a flag tied to it. Um, What a bunch of fucking pussies these guys are. Is all I've got to say. Just fucking pussies. Body shaming. Well, everything now is shaming. If you have a problem with someone and you say, you know what? This person has done shit to me and I'm fucking fed up with them. I'm going to let them know what I think. Everything you say is monitored. If you call him a fat piece of shit, how dare you? You're body shaming him. Yeah. Well, maybe he yeah. should have been a fucking dirtbag and I wouldn't be maybe, body shaming him. Maybe he shouldn't be a fat piece of shit that's so fat that he doesn't have a waistline. He's got a coastline. And again, the wrestler who complained about the bodies list, not in bad shape. Just not someone who would ever be near the top of the bodies list, and that was enough to be a problem. Let's get a song or two and get the hell out of here, Jim. Let the bodies hit the floor. Well, that song sucked, but let's get a song that hey, may be God good. God damn it, I, I, made, I made it good with, uh, it, that was the OVW entrance music, I'll have you know. There was so much bad music for a few years there. I don't blame you. <laughs> you used what was in popular culture. But between Limp Biscuit and, and Let the Bodies Hit the Floor and just all this fucking stained and mud and this and that. You know, that's that they did go through a period of time where every group was like a blemish, was like stain and mud and sloppy and. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get a song or two. This one <laughs> sent from Stefan in Auburn, Maine. He has sent three songs. Let's try one. Here it is. Dave's love must be some kind of line of love What he sees in the EW Young Bucks Young Bucks Young Bucks Young bucks, young bucks, all the stars that will rise. Young bucks, that's when he'll speak proudly 
He means well. He's trying, and I love Young Bucks, but uh, I'm I'm not sure any of those other things actually were musical notes. I'm now curious what his other songs are. Hold on, here's another one he sent. Let's see what this is. Wrestling. <laughs> At one time, it was the greatest thing. The territories and the stars they'd bring It makes me sing for wrestling Presently Half the roster of the WWE Blame the staff and their competency A new push for Ronda Rousey Why she have to smile for a while I can't convey and I think some things are missed never been wrestling wrestling another billionaire with cash to fling Contracts brandish in an even sting, but why put Rio in the ring? <laughs> why she's a veteran for about ten years, I'd say. Speak to my cohort in the spot of wrestling. Oh. Olivier, <laughs> your bookings in ten is as clear as day. Oh, we Japan will file in every way. Hard to believe, Olivier. All right, well. Hey, hey, hey. Well, let's give it for the, the second time around. We apologize, Sir Paul, for yes. what he's done to your song, Ma. But although it is the most covered song of all time, so I'm sure Sir Paul is understanding. Well, he didn't just cover it here; he fucking buried it. Well, there it is. But let's get one last song here. This one was sent to cornydrythrough at gmail dot com from Don Stevens. If that is indeed this person's real name, <laughs> let's go to this. Here 
comes Finger Bang, here comes Finger Bang, right down Twinkle Toes Lane. <laughs> Matt and Nick and all his friends with the boss doing cocaine. Ace is biting, Marks are fighting, Meltzer gives it six stars. So do a flip and super kick, cause Finger Bang wins tonight. Here comes Finger Bang, here comes Finger Bang, right down Twinkle Toes Lane. <laughs> He's got a blow-up doll filled with air for all the marks again. Hear those knees slap, slap, and slap, and oh, what a dreadful sight. So spread rumors with CM Punk, cause Finger Bang wins tonight. Oh, an instrumental break. We can talk. How are you? <laughs> hey, I'm good. There are some visuals here that you're not seeing when he's talking. Right now, it's just a black screen, but before the words pop up and there are some images, and I think we're coming out of the instrumental break, ladies and gentlemen. Let's go back to the song. Here comes Finger Bang, here comes Finger Bang, right down Twinkle Toes Lane. Phony matches and anime dating simulator game. Everyone knows Cornette's hatred for the Bucks was just a work. So confess in the Twitter DMs, cause Finger Bang wins tonight. Here comes Finger Bang, here comes Finger Bang, right down Twinkle Toes Lane. He'll come around when it's Wednesday night and drop the ratings again. <laughs> Olivia can't resist making a comment or two. If it was up to him, you wouldn't be signed, cause Finger Bang wins tonight. And I'm going to call it early oh, okay. and say thank you for sending that in, uh, Don <laughs> Stevens. Any closing thoughts on that one? Uh, well, I just uh, I think that's probably the best submission from Don Stevens since we uh, had Mr. Ed. The idea that Aubrey and Edwards... And if, if, if nobody knows what we're talking about, old Aubrey Edwards <laughs> masquerades as Don Stevens to try to get uh, uncomplimentary Twitter accounts to AEW taken off Twitter. However, knowing wrestling history, should we maybe commend Aubrey Edwards for picking the real name of Don Fargo to be her alias? But actually, that's not his real name. That's right. Donald Colt would be his real name, right? Because he was, he, well, he was brothers with Ray Stevens before he was brothers with Jackie Fargo, which is why when they first got together in New York, it was Wildman Fargo and Don Stevens. Right. And then later on, they became brothers. But when, when I drove Ray Stevens from Atlanta back to Charlotte 30 years ago from that plane debacle where we got canceled and rerouted he told me when he was partners with don that they were driving down the road one time this is the late 50s right and they're both in their 20s and you can imagine don fargo and ray stevens what a perfect combination and fucking ray's trying to sleep fargo's driving and ray says ah fargo if you don't let me sleep i'm gonna shoot your ass ah fuck you you wouldn't do that so he fucked with him so Ray had a 22 pistol. He turned around and he fucking, with his left hand, he just put it down and shot Fargo in the leg. But just a 22. <laughs> and Fargo laughed. He said, God damn it, you did it. And they had a big laugh about it while they were going to the hospital. Alcohol was probably involved. Back then, they didn't bullet shame anyone. No, there was no bullet shaming. Well, ladies and gentlemen, with that, the drive-thru is closed. Where's my fucking thing? Oh, man, someone moved it off my desk. I have the other one. Wait a minute. Here. Let me, let me take care of it for you. Hey. There you go.
Oh, oh, oh. The hell? We need to do like a sci-fi episode where we just have bleeps and gadgets and all sorts of things going the whole episode and we talk about wrestling in the future. I don't I think AEW is science fiction. All right, well, with that, the drive-thru is closed. Of course, you can hear more science fiction this weekend on the Jim Cornette Experience, wherever you find your favorite podcast, including a review of uh, WWE Extreme Rules. That's the event. This weekend, and of course, next week, right back here on the drive-thru, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, get access to the archive. Classic episodes of the drive-thru and experience going back to 2013. Patreon.com slash Cornette. Patreon.com slash Cornette. Once again, $5 a month access to the archive. Of course, subscribe to the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for Jim Cornette. It'll come right up. Full episodes, clips of episodes, omnibus collections, all with the exclusive Travis Heckle artwork. Check it out today and subscribe. The official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Of course, you can follow Jim on Twitter at the Jim Cornette. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to and check out the Wrestling News, free daily wrestling newscast covering all the news and none of the opinion. Go to thewrestlingnews.com or, of course, wherever you find your favorite podcast, subscribe to the Wrestling News. No paywall, no clickbait, just the Wrestling News. Jim. What's going on over at Coronet's Collectibles? A lot of chaos. Uh, just yesterday, another handful of, another handful, another truck full of boxes was handed off to the Feather Bottoms. I'm not even going to plug these products. They sell themselves, obviously, because we can't keep up with it, but we're trying as best we can, folks. If you have an action figure ordered, patience is a virtue. We all know that, and we're working as quickly as we can, and I'm signing literally dozens and dozens every day. At JimCornette.com. That's the place. Of course, the drive-thru is brought to you by the law office of Stephen P. New, 888-692-8084. Get even with Stephen at NewLawOffice.com. And of course, if you're a professional wrestler and you need legal advice, there's only one man to call, and that's Stephen P. New. But until this weekend on The Experience, and next week right back here on The Drive-Thru. For Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! Well, it's Jim Cornette's Drive-Thru. Yes, it's Jim Cornette's Drive-Thru. Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting on Big Fucking Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey Ryan, the young bucks, the rednecks and dumb fucks, and them door corner bum fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella and Santino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Well, it's all elite wrestling. Tony Khan is investing his billions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers. Yeah, they think they are wrestlers in video games just like Kenny Omega. We pledge allegiance. 
to the leader of the mighty cult of cornets, and to the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow up dolls, kick spots, or dance routines with blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. Yeah, they play with his Sega. You need to sue the guy for you. Steven, Pietro, everybody. Tony's drive-thru. Tony's drive-thru. Gony's drive-thru. Gony's drive-thru. And now, here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Lass.